Hello, it's 8th of April 2017 and this is episode 24 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. So Kirsty, how has your week in Star Wars been? Oh, it's been pretty good. I'm just kind of getting ready for celebration now because obviously mm-hmm. that's coming up. Um, I have been trying to arrange a meetup for our listeners if anyone is at celebration and wants to hang out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've said Saturday the 15th um, because there's not like a big panel the next day if people want to line up to it and it's kind of just towards the end of celebration. So people might be feeling a bit more relaxed and just want to hang out um, at the pub Orlando, which is pretty close to the convention center. Um, and we'll be hanging out there from around 8 PM that night. So if people want to come over and say hello, I'll be there with some friends. So it'd be nice to meet people who listen to the show and hear what they think and kind of hear what, what they think of celebration. Cause at that point we'll have had a trailer for the last Jedi and all the news that's come with it. So Mm. be exciting yeah no, it's a great time to hold a meetup um obviously i'm not going to celebration so i won't be able to be there but rest yeah. assured i will be there in spirit like hovering over like a benevolent smiling guiding force yeah i wish you were gonna be there because <laughs> thank you also from a selfish perspective because <laughs> i i realized after putting this together that i am a complete introvert um <laughs> Don't worry, I'm actually a really bad introvert as well, believe it or I think not. If we were together, we could probably kind of big each other up and make each other feel more confident. But I do want to meet people who listen to the show, so I will try and put my natural shyness aside mm. and talk to people and, yeah, get to know them because it'll be cool. I'm sure you'll so, be fine. And isn't Erin going as well? Yes, Erin, also known as Holocroning on Tumblr. She'll be um, at Celebration the whole time and uh yeah she's said she'll come and hang out with me and meet people too because she's been a guest on the show so yeah it works out awesome um how has your week been um it's been really cool and actually just today two really cool star wars things happened to me so the first and the less interesting is that i was able to buy series three of the clone wars from cex for five quid seriously it's such a bargain it's on blu-ray man (laughs) <laughs> That's a really great deal for a Blu-ray for the whole season. Um, so yeah, I was super psyched about that. Um, especially since it's got the Mortis episodes on it, because I've heard nothing but amazing things, and I really want to watch them. Um, and then the other thing that happened, which is actually really cool, is that I was in the supermarket, and the people in front of me, they had some awesome Star Wars bags. And one in particular that caught my eye had um, Padme and Anakin on one side and Luke and Leia on the other with like Darth Vader watching over them all. Um, and it was just an awesome bag. And I mentioned to them like, hey, your bags are really cool. Um, where did they come from? And we basically got chatting about Star Wars and I explained that I did a podcast and he just, the guy just said, I think you should have this bag. And he just handed it to me. <laughs> Oh, uh, so nice. I know, right? It, it's just such a lovely thing because it was a totally unexpected act of kindness. And it just really made my day. It's just the kind of gesture that is just so lovely because there was no obligation on his part to do that. But he clearly just wanted to do it to be nice. And um, they asked what the podcast was called. So <laughs> on the off chance that they actually looked it up and listened, and you are the person who gave me that bag thank you so so much it really made my day and you're an awesome person or awesome people I should say because you you were a couple (laughs) so thank you so much it really meant a lot yeah that's really sweet 
yeah, it was really cool. Um, right, to get the business out of the way, please do rate and review us on iTunes because that really helps us out. Um, and as always, many thanks to you if you have done so already. We really appreciate it. Um, and we obviously have questions later on in the show and you can email them to scavengershoard at gmail.com. This week, the spotlight discussion was recorded in advance with our friend Melissa um, and it's about General Hux. So you have that to look forward to later in the show. Um, and a new thing that is going to be happening in the show is that basically we're starting to get more significant spoilers for The Last Jedi now. And we're aware that not everyone who listens is a spoiler junkie like ourselves. Um, so in the interests of trying to preserve people from the worst spoilers, or at least the... The best spoilers. <laughs> yes, exactly. The most substantial spoilers, shall we say. <laughs> we have instated a new policy where we are going to talk about the spoilers right at the tail end of the show. Um, and to warn people when spoilers are imminent, I will attempt to source a siren sound that will play helpfully to wake anyone up who's listening and make them go, oh god, spoilers, and run away <laughs> if they need to. Um, and also, I will try and do a timestamp for when the spoiler discussion starts, um, because I know that I haven't been in the timestamp breakdown so much recently, and it's just because it's very time-consuming. But I'm happy to just do that one d- indicator. So I know some of you, if you're voracious spoiler hounds, you'll probably just want to go straight to the spoilers. <laughs> So I will help you out in that way. Um, right, is that all the business out of the way, Kirsty? Yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. Right, then let's move into the news. And the first story is from Flickr and Myth. And it says, According to industry tracking site Mindtainment World, the Colin Trevorrow-helmed Star Wars Episode Nine will start shooting in July 2017 in London, presumably at Pinewood. This follows a previous report on Omega Underground, which claimed that a casting call was seeking extras for the shoot in London that very same month. So, Kirsty, what do you think about this? Do you reckon they'd really start shooting Episode Nine this early? I would be very surprised if this is true. Mm. Because how long is the Han Solo shoot going to go for? Like, I would have thought that would still be filming at that point. I've heard they're wrapping in July. Oh, okay. Because um, I would figure that they would use the same crew. Yeah. They, they do a lot of that on Star Wars. So mm. um, I guess it's possible, but I kind of just assumed that they wouldn't start shooting until after The Last Jedi's come out because there's going to be some things that they want to change, right? Depending on like how the reception of that story goes. Not not huge big things about where the story's ultimately going. They couldn't yeah. do that. But um. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I find it quite hard to believe. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility, especially if episode nine is going to come out in May 2019 rather than December 2019, because that is less than two years away. Mm. Um, So there would be logic in starting now, because otherwise it would be a bit tight. So they'd only have just over a year. Um, If they were to start filming, say, in January 2018, because that's quite a short window for a huge, huge film like Episode Nine is going to be. Um, so I'd say it's not impossible. But yeah, I, I just find it hard to buy that they would start shooting this film like before The Last Jedi's even come out. Um, because 
even beyond them, like potentially wanting to make changes um, as a result of how The Last Jedi is received and what it looks like in its form, final form and everything, there's also the question of, well, things are probably going to come out of that set. And there's probably going to be leaks of some description. Right. So do you really want people to be two movies ahead of you by starting to film it and risking information from that set coming out when the preceding film hasn't even come out yet? It it just seems like a strange game plan to me. Yeah, because then anything coming out of that would spoil The Last Jedi. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, it could be true. Like you say, it's not impossible, but... I don't know, we'll have to wait and see if we hear any more about that. Yeah, exactly. It's the kind of thing where it's hard to say too much because it could be like a fabrication. It could be like a garbled report. It's possible that while these sites are saying it's for episode nine, it could be for the Han Solo movie. It could be reshoots for The Last Jedi. Um, it's, I think it's really hard to take it at face value, basically. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Right, then the next story is that the Star Wars show has been whipping up excitement for the 40th anniversary panel at Star Wars Celebration. Um, And basically each week the Star Wars YouTube, it puts out a new episode of the Star Wars show. Um, And this time it was obviously, a a lot of it was dedicated to a celebration preview. And they were just super hyping the 40th anniversary panel. Um, and saying you should not miss this you need to be watching it live you have to be in that room basically super super hyping it um so yeah Kirsty, it's obviously you're, you're going to be there i would imagine <laughs> uh like do you have any theories or ideas like what do you reckon the most probable things are that are going to come out of that panel oh most probable i think it's going to be that they announced the obi-wan spin-off mm-hmm. but I don't know. There's all sorts of things that they could have. I mean, some people have been speculating that George Lucas could be there. Yes. So, who knows? I'm not letting myself get my hopes up like about anything specific. I just want to go and see what happens. Yeah. Um, so, I saw yeah. Star Wars Newsnet, um, like, I think implying that George will be there. Um, I think they were framing it as a rumour. So it wasn't like, George Lucas will definitely be in attendance. Mm. Um but they said it was some it was something they had heard from their sources. So yeah, I, I wouldn't bet on it, but I wouldn't be like shocked and amazed <laughs> if it did happen, basically. Yeah, I'd be very interested to see him there and and see like how candid he is in terms of things, like what he'll say about where things are going in Star Wars. Because yeah. obviously he doesn't he doesn't own it anymore. He doesn't have creative control, so it's an interesting position for him to be in. Yeah, there's pictures of George Lucas at an event for Martin Scorsese's Silence. And there's these photos of George Lucas talking to Adam Driver. Oh, yeah. And it's so surreal because I wonder what on earth must that conversation be like? So it's possible they just completely ignore Star Wars and don't discuss it. But it kind of feels like the elephant in the room, I think, when you have those two people together. Um, So, yeah, it's really fascinating because obviously in the past, George has like his reactions to the force awakens they've not been completely glowing they've suggested that he thinks it's too much of like a nostalgic movie essentially which is obviously quite a common criticism of that film um but i don't think it's like he's on acrimonious terms with lucasfilm or anything like that so i I I can definitely see him attending yeah and i think his comments on the force awakens are pretty fair because he, he as he said it was something that made financial sense to do that Right? Yeah, like, um, 
but it's it's not what he would have done with them. Yeah. Like he wouldn't have had to play into that nostalgia because he's always done whatever he wants with Star Wars and hasn't really worried too much about the commercial aspect of it. So mm. and that's one of the most interesting things about the prequels, the fact that they're they're not like the easy choice because he didn't tell that story, the story of Anakin Skywalker, in the way everyone expected and wanted him to do it. Like mm. I don't think many fans wanted to see Darth Vader as like an eight year old, for example, you know, but that was the story that George wanted to tell. So he told right. it because he did have that complete creative freedom and he didn't have to be beholden to people's expectations or desires for Star Wars. Whereas right. Disney do to a much larger extent because it's not like it's an O'Toole driven enterprise anymore at this point. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I was also wondering like about which configurations of actors we can expect because obviously we've already seen there's like a big long list of names that are going to be there. We know Mark's going to be there. We know Hayden's going to be there. Um, I think Ian McDermott is going to be there. Um, Peter Mayhew. Um, and there's a bunch of other names as well. I kind of wonder whether any of the new cast members are going to be there. Because hmm. they're definitely yeah, not sure around. Because they're going to be at the Last Jedi panel on the next day. Um so yeah, it, it does. It is a question that's milling around my brain. <laughs> yeah, it's, they're probably less likely to be announced for that. Mm. Um, it'd be more of a surprise if they turn up for that one, and then it's like a bonus for them to be there as well as at the Last Jedi one. So yeah, it's like I remember at the um, Future Filmmakers panel, they ended up getting out loads of people that we weren't really expecting. So I don't think we were expecting like Mark and Carrie and John. No. At that panel. Um, but they all turned up anyway. So I'm sure there's going to be a healthy helping of surprise guests. Um, but yeah, I'd say like Ewan is like 90% certain. And then the others, there's just a bit of a question mark around them. Yeah. Then the next story is that Colin Trevorrow has said that he has finished the draft of the script for episode 9. And this goes... Colin Trevorrow has taken on directing duties for episode 9 and gave an update on the project while speaking to MTV at CinemaCom after unforeseen and unfortunate complications arose during his pre-production process. And that's an allusion to Carrie passing. Um, the director has confirmed that they have a draft ready to go and are working on making it a finalised version. We're writing, we're designing, and there is a draft. You know, we're throwing 110% of our souls into it, so there will be nothing left of me when I'm done. <sighs> yeah, so does this fill you with any particular thoughts or feelings, Kirsty? Um Okay. I know I'm adding my voice to the kind of a crowd that already exists, but I am a bit apprehensive about Colin Trevorrow. Mm. Um I didn't love Jurassic World. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm you know, it's good that they have a draft finished, right? Yeah. Um, Things seem to be on schedule. And that makes sense if we were still working from the date of The Last Jedi being released in May. Um, but, yeah. I don't know. Mixed feelings right now. Sorry. Yeah. Sounds so negative. No, no. I, I feel pretty much the same, to be honest. And I'm one of those people I didn't hate Jurassic World. I didn't think it was like a great film and I have no desire to ever see it again. Right. I um, thought it was pretty boring. But like I found it entertaining enough. I think I went to see it in the cinema on one of my birthdays, actually. I, um, it came out a couple of years ago, didn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah, like it didn't offend me. Like, and 
the fact that he had directed that didn't fill me with dread, which I know is the case of other people. What actually really worries me about Colin Trevorrow is that I saw the trailer for his new movie, The Book of Henry, and it's really a bad trailer. And and to be fair, you can get great movies that are very poorly marketed um, and just have a really bad publicity campaign. So I, I don't think it's fair to judge like Colin's next film on the basis of its trailer. But I did see that trailer and my heart kind of sank. So I thought, oh, it looks pretty rough. Um, because it wasn't just the way the trailer was assembled. It was like literally the directorial quality of the footage I was watching. It looked like some kind of TV movie. Um, and it's not really fair to judge because The Book of Henry is obviously on a much, much smaller scale than Episode Nine will be. And I'm sure it had a minuscule budget compared to what the budget of episode nine will be. Um, but yeah, it did fill me with a sense of trepidation, shall I say. But yeah, like I'm trying not to get too concerned because he clearly can handle a big movie. Because I'd say at a minimum, Jurassic World was competent. I think it was a competent film. So I don't think he's going to be a disaster as a director. I, I just find him a disappointing choice because Ryan Johnson is so inspired by comparison. I think I think it is that comparison that's the issue for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, a lot of people had an issue with Jurassic World because of the way he handled the female lead. Mm, yeah. Yeah, which I didn't think was fantastic. You know, so people are understandably concerned about Ray and um Leia as well who will get you in, in the next story so i've got my fingers crossed like obviously i don't want to see him fail mm. i'm not rooting for that i want him to succeed and for it to be a great movie um so yeah i've got to see like it's you know very early days and we haven't he- heard anything substantial about episode nine yet obviously so yeah no i I've, i'm not too worried about it even though i am a bit anxious i won't lie um because I know that like it's not like Colin's the only person responsible for the franchise at this point. There's gonna be loads of right. other people involved to support him and like help make sure that this final film is a great capstone to this trilogy. Um, because I know Ryan Johnson's gonna continue to be involved. So I really do get the impression that he's like the architect of the overarching like story and the thematic stuff, like mm-hmm. to a much greater extent than JJ Abrams was even. Yeah, I would say that's true, because um, he was involved with The Force of Awakens. Obviously, he's writing and directing the second film and produced the treatment for episode nine. So everything kind of must tie together. Um, and to an extent, like the director of the third film probably has the least creative control in terms of the overall story, right? Because you have two of the three pieces at that point so you're kind of just wrapping up people's arcs yeah. in a way that seems satisfying so it's, it's totally possible that they won't seem satisfying but there's kind of less room for error because so much has been set up yeah no definitely yeah. um and i think it's also worth remembering that richard markland who directed return of the jedi he's not really known as a great director He's done like other films that were well regarded, I think, besides Return of the Jedi, but he's not really a name director, and he certainly wasn't when he was chosen to direct that film. Um, and I personally really like Return of the Jedi, and if mm-hmm. Episode Nine can just match up to that and just be a fun film that ties everything up nicely and has like emotional power and resonance to it, then I'll be happy, basically. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's possible that we're all completely underestimating him and he'll knock it out of the park. So. Yeah. No, that's like totally true. Because obviously he's aware of the gravity of this job. He knows this is on another level to Jurassic World. He knows how much it means to people that this film be good. He knows it has to be good, pretty much. Like, there's not much room for him to fail. Because if he failed, he would be demonised until the end of time. So it's huge, huge pressure on him. And I don't envy him at all. Um, And yeah, I'm sure he is going to do what he says he's going to do. And just put his heart and soul into this film to make it the best it possibly can be. Um, so yeah, I'm rooting for him. So like I say, I never want anyone to fail. I want him and the film to be great. So yeah, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Then the next story is that Todd Fisher says that Carrie Fisher will appear in episode nine. And this story is from NY Daily News. And it goes, after months of speculation about Carrie's future in the sci-fi saga, Todd has revealed that Disney bosses want to bring Princess Leia back for episode nine. I wish they'd call her General. She's a general now. <laughs> so anyway, and he and Carrie's daughter, Billy, have granted the studio rights to use recent footage for the finale. It is understood that CGI will not be used to cre- recreate Leia. Both of us were like, yes, how do you take her out of it? And the answer is you don't, said Fisher, as he attended the opening night of the TCM Film Festival in Los Angeles, celebrating in the heat of the night. She's as much a part of it as anything, and I think her presence now is even more powerful than it was, like Obi-Wan. When the saber cuts him down, he becomes more powerful. I feel like that's what happened with Carrie. I think the legacy should continue. I'm, I really like these comments. Uh, what did you make of them, Kirsty? Yeah, I think this is going to turn out to be the best case scenario, like the best of what they could have done. Because yeah. I, I was really crossing my fingers for not having the CGI. And then because of all the rumors that were happening a couple of months ago, Disney did put out that press release saying that they were not planning to do that, which was very reassuring. Yeah. Um, and you know, lots of people were toying around with the idea of them recasting. And I did see a lot of interesting um, articles about the need for them to complete Leia's arc in a satisfying way because it's about the character as well as Carrie um but obviously they've decided not to do that and it turns out that they have footage they think they can use mm. so hopefully that works out and it and it feels seamless within the story yeah no I'm kind of curious to find out where this footage is going to come from so you don't even specify that it's footage from Star Wars so I would imagine that it has to be I'm guessing there's some kind of deleted material from Last Jedi or maybe even Force Awakens that they're going to use in some way. Mm. I wonder, because we heard a while back, I don't know if I don't know if this counts as a spoiler, I don't think so because it was reported in a lot of mainstream things that there was speculation that the two major scenes were going to be her reunion with Luke and then one with Kylo. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were kind of speculating that the one with Luke would be in The Last Jedi and the one with Kylo would be in Episode 9, but I wonder if it's possible that they already shot something like that. Yeah. No, it's certainly possible. And that'd be great if, like, she had. Um, because both those scenes would be so, so important. It means so much. Um, like, to her character's arc and just to the films as a whole. Because mm. it's going to mean so much to people to see Luke and Leia together again. And like Leia being reunited with her son, that would just be such a crucial story moment. It would be kind of heartbreaking if we never get that. Um, So yeah, I'd like to think that those scenes already exist out there in some form, but we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah. 
I would hope so. Like even something that they have like a rudimentary version, like or a read through or some kind of rehearsal. Do you know what I mean? Something that they could work with. Yeah. Um, cause, cause they probably could work real magic with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think they're clearly out to be very respectful towards what Carrie did. And I absolutely think that's the most important thing. And I really like to see that her family members are giving their blessing as well. So I think that's so important. Obviously, they'd never do it without their blessing. And I doubt they'd legally be able to do it without their blessing. Um, mm-hmm. But it's nice to see that they appreciate like how important it is that she remains crucial to these films. Because, yeah, like they say, you can't take Leia out of Star Wars. like, or And you definitely can't like act like she's just off on the sidelines somewhere, it's so, which is why she's not appearing. So, yeah. I'm happy with how they're handling it. Yeah, same. Um, right, so then the next segment is going to be our spotlight discussion with Melissa. Um, and this is all going to be about General Hux. So, we hope you enjoy it. And I will speak to you on the other side. Right, so this is going to be a very special spotlight discussion. And because it's a very special spotlight discussion, that means we have a very special guest. And on this occasion, that guest is Melissa. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, hello. First of all, thanks for inviting me to the podcast. You guys are awesome. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Um, I'm Melissa. Um, You guys might know me on Tumblr as at HuxFanBlog. And um, my blog is pretty much dedicated to General Hux uh, fan fiction or General Hux in just canon and analyzing his character pretty much i'm just a huge hux fan <laughs> it's pretty cool like yeah. you i think you were the one who did the um like hux timestamps post yes that's probably one of my, bi- my most popular posts is the timestamps <laughs> of all of his appearances in tfa like what time and kind of like what he's doing in that moment and yeah it's n- no one had done it yet i'm like oh no one's done this and people that like to write about hux they might want to you know find a certain scene really quick so yeah it allows the true Hux fan to get to what really matters. <laughs> yes, the Hux bits. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Um, right, so for this discussion, we're basically going to break it into broad sections, which we generally do with our spotlights. Um, and to begin with, we are going to touch upon the earliest beginnings of General Hux, which is his childhood. And to be honest, we actually know a surprising amount of, about his childhood, to be honest. Um, because yeah, we he's... do. We know more than we know about Ben. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Um, so they're keeping all the Skywalker stuff so secretive and on the down low. Um, but they're obviously being a bit more open about Hux and that kind of thing because that is a story that's going to come out in the expanded material rather than the films themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the main way through which we know about Hux is has been through the books, in particular the Aftermath trilogy. Um, yeah, and I was just wondering, Melissa, if you could just like introduce like how he's first touched upon in the aftermath books i think he's first brought up in life debt yeah life debt is the first time we even hear him as referred to but as um brendel hux his father as his four-year-old son and um it's during a meeting when brendel describes him we hear his first name for the very first time actually that we hear i pr- pronounce it armitage but i've mm-hmm. heard some debate over 
but I just say Armitage because that just seems natural to me. Mm-hmm. But he calls Armitage a weak-willed boy, thin as a slip of paper, and just as useless. But I'll teach him. You'll see. He has potential. And that's the first time like we hear about you know, Hux, and we find out his first name because for, like, since TFA for the last few months, we haven't even had what's his name. So in fandom, they've, you know, pretty much created, you know, fill-in first names for Mm. for General Hux. So that's the first time we hear about Hux as a character in the Star Wars universe. Mm. Wasn't he called Brendel in lots of fanfiction? Yes, yeah, because a lot of um, they were like, oh, he'll just have him named after his dad and be Brendel Jr. <laughs> and so Brendel was one of the most popular ones. Yeah. Yes. And some some of them are still sticking to their guns and saying, well, we picked this first name for him. So they're continuing to use Brendel or the other popular names that have been out there. Mm. But yeah. I wonder if we would even hear his first name in any of the films. Mm. I would love to hear his name in the film. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, if you want to believe that his name is still Bren, which I see a lot, uh, I think that would still yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, you know? Bren. So. yeah. Well, that's kind of like a nickname from Brendel when, when he's in the more like romantic situations, and it doesn't sound as weird as Brendel. I don't know, but yeah. I have seen people like struggle to find like affectionate nicknames for Armitage. It's Isn't quite it Army. Yeah. Armity. Armity, really? I've seen that, yeah. Wow. Fics, yeah. That's pretty rough, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like the person, the gods who named me, I think, at that point. I'd be like, have you? It is hard to make that name cutesy, though. But I mean, he's not necess- he's not really a cutesy character, so that's kind of the point. <laughs> yeah. <But. laughs> no, exactly. It, it could have been worse. Like, Star Wars names, like the evil dudes, they tend to be, like, pretty... Like yeah. benevolent, shall we yeah. say? So he got off quite lightly. Quite clear, like what kind of character they are by their name, pretty much. Yeah, definitely. Um, I find it really interesting. Um, how they like establish the background to Hux in the aftermath trilogy. Mm. Um, so in a way, it's something like a stock background for a villain because it's very clear that he's going to have daddy issues. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> his father is so dismissive about him and like very like harsh because as you mentioned he's only four years old yeah he's like oh he's weak useless and and it's like a four he's four he probably wouldn't know how to read or write and it's like god give him a chance yeah i mean i mean from what he does in the end of um empire's end though it seems like quite you know advanced for his age Mm. i mean if he's still the same age in empire's end so yeah. yeah, and it's also worth mentioning that they introduce him as a bastard child. Yeah, that's really interesting, you know. He's not just the son of Brendel, no, he's the, the forbidden love child from his affair with the kitchen woman. Oh, yes. So it makes it even more, like, dramatic. Yeah, I do wonder if there's going to be, like, a Mills and Boone-esque like, novel <laughs> about this, like, passionate love affair. Between <laughs> I don't really want to hear that part. Part. <laughs> Yeah, no, based on what we know about Brendel Hux, I, I don't think no, it would be a particularly like romantic a relationship. Character. No, no. <laughs> and we find out that Brendel has been abusing um, Hux at the end of uh, Empire's End. So, I mean, clearly that probably wouldn't be something we'd want to read about with the <laughs> maid. So, no. I mean, most of us. <laughs> yeah, no, so I think 
the purpose of introducing him in that way like having him be this bastard child who his father very much like judges and looks down upon mm-hmm. i really think that's heavily about creating like this sense of like inadequacy and that he has something to prove yeah exactly yeah that gives him something to strive against because if he were like spoilt and like the legitimate child of brendel hut who was always believed to be the next great hope of the empire and stuff yeah then i don't think he would have that same drive because it's clear that he has this determination to establish himself as like some kind of significant power and some of like influence and prestige and that's because he was not born with influence or prestige Yeah, yeah. And I find it also interesting because I see General Hux as, you know, a direct comparison to Kylo and even childhood, like the kind of opposites. General Hux is this bastard son that rises up, you know, to become someone great. And like Kylo, who is Ben, was like the the beloved child of Princess Leia, who kind of like fell from grace. So like Mm. even then, they're already kind of like mirror opposites of each other, which I find really interesting. Yeah, no, definitely, because um, obviously the whole deal with Ben is that he was a dreadful disappointment to his parents and he went mm. the exact way that they feared he would go because they obviously always had this like nagging worry that he might turn out to be like Vader and that, of course, yeah. ended up happening in a big way. Whereas with Hux, there were no expectations because his father didn't believe in him. Yeah. Then he yeah. went on to achieve these incredible things and become the leader of the First Order. Um, so it's quite different. Because, um, it's fascinating because they're very much complementary journeys. Yeah, exactly. And uh, those two characters, they're paired up so throughout TFA and now we see even in their backstories, it's kind of the contrast is there. So I, I really think that a lot of Hux as a character by himself is interesting, but he's also there to really like kind of compliment, like and see to show us who Kylo Ren also is as a character. You know, mm. because that contrast is he's like they're literally side by side. We're literally always you know comparing the two when they have a scene together. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, and I also find it interesting from aftermath the way they bring in Hux and they use him as like an excuse to like introduce this wider theme of those books which is this preoccupation with the children and like recruiting children children. Um, and you just see this over and over again and we we touched upon this in our discussion with Erin I think Kirsty about the aftermath books Um, but yeah it's, it's just really interesting that there's this constant refrain that it's all about this new generation rather than the old one and while this is not like it's explicitly brought up in The Force Awakens, it's kind of implicit because you do not see old people. Yeah, no, they're pretty much the, the new ones, yeah. Yeah, no, it's very striking. Um, and there's this quote from Rax in Life Debt, and he says, The Empire must be fertile and young. Children are crucial to our success. Many of our officers are old. We need that kind of vitality. That brand of energy you get with the young. The Empire needs children. So foreboding. Yeah, sinister. <laughs> yeah. No, it's stuff like that that makes me lean towards Ray being like of Imperial descent. Yeah, no, I also feel the same way about that. Yeah. I do remember when watching The Force Awakens for the first time, I was struck by how young Hux was. Mm. Like, as a general. Yeah. You know, it, mm, it yeah. gets you thinking about how on earth he 
how has his career taken him somewhere so quickly? But obviously he has that sheer determination shaped mm. by his horrible childhood and relationship with his father. Yes. So you almost wonder if he, like part of the resentment he feels for Kylo Ren is because of that, you know, that foil um, element yes. to their relationship that Kylo Ren has all this entitlement and legacy mm. um, and probably just, I mean, he he's part of the First Order but doesn't really he's not beholden to any of the military um, hierarchy, right? Yeah, so he's he kind of, just... he's external to that hierarchy, kind of, so he, things don't apply to him in the same way as they did to General Hux. So yeah, that must make Hux very angry. <laughs> <laughs> it does, I'm sure. Yeah, I think you really see that, like, in all those, like, bristling moments of tension between them. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's definitely a really good point. I think they absolutely cast Donal very deliberately to have that question mark hanging over the character. Oh, yeah. I mean, Donal's really key to, um, you know, the, the physical presence of Donal really tells us a lot about Hux's character, actually. So I mm. think that's a really interesting part of the characterization of Hux. Yeah. Um, I guess that the first time we actually see Hux in the flesh, chronologically speaking, is in Empire's End. Yes, um, Empire's End. Yeah, so he turns up towards the end of the book um, because he's been rescued with his father from Arcanus. And they are basically on their way into the Unknown Regions um, with the remnants of the Empire to regroup. And they are essentially what will become the First Order by the time of TFA. Um, and yeah, Hux at this point, he is a tiny child. Um, and <laughs> very tiny and yeah, scared. Exactly. He's very tiny and it's scared. So sad. Yeah. And, and it's this strange, um, like confluence of having this vulnerable young child, but also this like unnaturally mature, like manner about him. Um, because he speaks like a much older child would. Um, and apparently he's had some kind of private school education, which is very peculiar. Do you think there might there's possible that they originally conceived of Hux as an older character, then they aged him down when they cast Donal? Um, and um, sometimes we're seeing like a bit of a hangover from that in terms of like how he's depicted elsewhere. Because I don't think it's explicitly stated in Aftermath that he's four. We just know that he's four then because yeah. we have his age from other materials. I mean, that could be, like, they could have had him as older earlier on, but I think that the youth kind of helps, you know, build his character, um, and they might have just included that because they realized that Donal was such a good fit um, mm-hmm. for Hux, because, I mean, even, you know, in our world, like, anyone under 40 being a general is pretty much unheard of, and I yeah. think that's, like, the case in Star Wars as well, so that just is, like, another demonstration of what he had to do and like how he climbed up the ranks so quickly. Mm. So, I mean, I think like they might've, you know, aged him down to have Dono um, and just, you know, Dono's appearance, like his like very like lightweight kind of appearance. I mean, Dono's by no means like really weak, but if you put him next to Kylo, who's built like a brick house, <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's that contrast there. Mm. So, and then I think, but of course his youth also played a big, you know, role in choosing Donald Gleason. So, yeah. but yeah, to answer your question, they could have very well aged him down, but I mean, I'm, it's not completely, you know, un, you know, heard of for a child that age to be that, 
together that just shows that it's probably like a really gifted child or something like that so that could also be the case but I think also just Chuck Wendig might have just forgotten how old Hux was yeah and I I guess with Empire's End it's really interesting to see like that duality between this frightened young boy and this like more confident assertive persona that more closely resembles the character that we go on to see in The Force Awakens. Yeah, we kind of see the beginnings of how he becomes that because right mm-hmm. at the end, that's when he start, He takes control. You know, Rax gives him control of the feral children and moments before then he was afraid they were about to rip him apart. Yeah. And then by the end of that, he's like giving them commands and like starting to take control. And you mm-hmm. can see the beginnings of the character that General Hux becomes later on. Yeah. And like you actually see like a bit of a sadistic streak in him because um he basically like he can't initially believe that he actually has this control yeah. of the children. So um like I think he actually asks one of the boys to hit the boy next to him. Yes, yes. Um and <laughs> then in response to that, after like see like the damage inflicted on the child, like a his nose starts bleeding, I think. Um, and it says, Armitage feels a strange and sinister buzz of excitement. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's like, ha! Yeah, so it's the kind of line that you read and you think, yeah, this kid has no chance of turning out good. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think I also see that scene as, you know, he'd been part physically or mentally abused by his father and like Mm. for the first time in his life he has some semblance of you know taking control and power not necessarily that it's justified that you know he likes to see violence but that's Mm. just part of like what made his character the way it is I think oh yeah no sure I don't like believe anyone's born evil um, so I don't think like he came out of the womb like I'm going to be a general and to be a dictator and enjoy pain. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you say, I think because of his experiences, particularly with his father, like so I think Ray Sloan like basically says, like, I have my eye on you. I know you've been abusing this child. I mean, she pretty much beats the crap out of him and says, yeah. "You better." not hurt Hux anymore and teach Mm. him what you know pretty much so you better be nice to Hux and teach him what you know you know about troop training in the first order and you know his plans for you know the future and things like that so it pretty much takes the guy having you know the crap beaten out of him for him to be nice to his son which tells you something there yeah it's quite tragic really (laughs) yeah (laughs) and it's also very tragic that like Armitage seems so intent on like continuing his father's legacy um, mm. because it's not like his father, as far as we can tell, has given him any reason to want to like continue his work. Like, and it's just like a sad irony that he just wants to perpetuate the legacy of this man who's been vile towards him. You wonder if he knows of any alternative because if he was raised in that kind of culture, like mm. the Empire and then going on to be the First Order, yeah. does, does he really feel like he has any other option? Is he aware of how other people would live their lives? Or mm. has he just been brainwashed by his father to think that this is order, this is the way the galaxy should be? Mm. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's just because that's the only thing he has really in his life, you know, to build upon this legacy, whatever legacy the, the First Order decides, you know, towards the end of Empire's End, they're on their way to you know, meet up with the remnants and that is what becomes the first order later on. Mm. Yeah, it's sad because you feel like even though Hux is a very minor character in The Force Awakens, he fits into that theme of characters like Ray and Finn who didn't really have a childhood. Mm. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. 
I wonder if this this part in the um, in Empire's End about him being afraid of the of a children, but then trying to assert his authority is it could be like a foreshadowing for stormtroopers kind of rebelling against him and then him becoming frightened of them once he realizes that they're no longer under his control yeah that's a really interesting idea yeah i saw kind of like a direct parallel actually well just the image of hux in front of the the feral children and then later on in tfa hux in front of these massive stormtroopers and just like those kids could have you know completely destroyed hux the stormtroopers you know could easily you know overthrow hux and pretty much rip him mm. to shreds so I, I see like a big parallel in those two mm. things mm-hmm. i think that'd actually be a great ending for the character <laughs> sorry melissa so i know he's your favorite but... i know i know yeah but as long as he has a good end i'll accept it it's yeah. just as long as it's not off-screen death yeah no, exactly so i think like he's this guy and he obviously has this stormtrooper program that he's immensely p- proud of and the stormtrooper program has been all about like repressing these people's like mm. selves and making them all anonymous and controlling them. And like Hux like seems to have that control very much embodied within himself. And if that control were to go in his own creations, so to speak, were to turn on him, I think that'd be a really like cool and dramatically fitting end for that character. Hopefully not until episode nine. <laughs> no, I want I want him to make it to the last movie, so at least we have Dono for all three movies. That that's my biggest wish. But as long as he has a well written end, you know, it's not just oh his ship blows up off off screen, you know. Yeah, like then, then I'm okay. and comic book or something. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be the worst. No, it would be. No, I, I think because he is a foil to Kylo Ren that if he well, when he dies, sorry. Uh, it, it would be very dramatic and to illustrate a change in, in Kylo Ren as a character as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, if Kylo Ren is like has this redemption, then that could also be used as like a showdown between them to show like, you know, Kylo Ren's character changing and if they're like enemies now all of a sudden instead of allies or something like that. Mm. Yeah, they're all really interesting stuff. Um I guess, like, going from Empire's End, like, we there's obviously a massive jump between that and The Force Awakens. I think, is um, Hux 34 in The Force Awakens? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's 30 years, exactly. Um, I hope we get another novel of, like, young-ish Hux. I oh, really I'm love sure him. we will. I would eat that up. Yeah. <laughs> I would love a novel that explores more of his relationship with Ray Sloan. Mm. Oh, that would be cool too, because we don't know if she's still alive in TFA. I mean, that'd be awesome if we still had Ray Sloan around, but mm. I would like to see more of that relationship as well. Yeah, because I'd like them to fill in the gaps a bit more as to how the First Order was formed, because we got kind of hints and bloodline about it being formed like in the background. Um, but if you have those details of how this young boy became part of something so critical to the galaxy and... And Ray Sloan's a fascinating character in her own right as well. She's so. really cool, like as a villain. She's really like awesome. I hope that they show more about her, and I think they really might because the way Empire's like, end ended was kind of like a cliffhanger, like right about they're right about to meet the remnants, and they don't show them actually arriving. They just say, "Oh, we're about to start something new." So they mm-hmm. kind of that either up to imagination or up to maybe different novels or something in the future, mm-hmm. hopefully. Yeah, I'm almost certain they are going to fill those gaps in some way. Um, there's a lot of speculation that there's going to be an animated series after Star Wars Rebels that's set in the time between Return of the Jedi 
and The Force Awakens. Um, so that kind of series, like it's pretty much guaranteed to explore like the young Ben Solo and Luke as they're going off doing whatever they were doing. <laughs> um, and like my feelings that that would also be a really great medium through which to like explore like the early First Order and how they build themselves up and like create an actual functioning military machine. Um, because if you think back to say the Clone Wars, the Clone Wars did not just follow like Anakin and Obi Wan, like when they were going off on Jedi Jedi missions. It followed all kinds of different characters and different spheres of the galaxy. So you got this like broad panoramic view of what was happening during the Clone Wars. Um, so I'd really like to see that again with any like movie with any TV series set in that gap. Like, would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I would love definitely to see like that. to see that. Yeah. Mm. Have we heard anything? like trustworthy about that being a potential story or is it just kind of us all hoping that that would be the case <laughs> um I, I haven't like seen any like reports from say my, making star wars or star wars news net or anything to that effect but there's been lots of heavy speculation and mm-hmm. i think if it is happening then it will be announced at a celebration so we will know very soon yeah but it would make sense yeah. to have that after the last jedi comes out right because it's going to raise more questions and there's going to be so much story that they still need to fill the gaps in that would never you know they would not be able to address all of that in episode nine yeah so it makes sense yeah no definitely because um i think the thing is the last jedi that is going to be the film where most of the secrets are going to be exposed and while don't get me wrong the episode nine that will still answer more questions i think like once those big big questions been answered by episode eight like about ray's parentage and about ben's fall and those kinds of things i think then it, there is going to be much much more freedom to st- tell other stories mm-hmm. set in that time prior to the force awakens because right now we have nothing because it's up to the film the last jedi to actually tell us those stories and to fill in those gaps um but yeah i think it's going to be open season on storytelling open season <laughs> <laughs> for the fanfic writers as well <laughs> yes exactly although i hope they do leave like quite a few good chunks of the story left untold because i don't like them to fill in every single gap but so i think there has to be some room for the fans to like fill it with what they imagine as well yeah well star wars is such a big universe i think mm-hmm. there'll always be some room and even if the you know something is written about people can still have their own versions and their own ideas so doesn't completely limit them yeah yeah no totally um yeah like obviously this is quite speculative but just because it is something that we really have no answers to right now like do either of you guys have like any theories or ideas as to like how we move from where things are left at the end of empire's end so ray sloan and brendel hux they still seem to be the authority figures like armitage is a small child and then there's the feral children who are presumably going to become the stormtroopers further down the line and then tr- fast forward 30 years and Brendel Hux and Ray Sloan completely out of the picture mm. and the stormtrooper program is fully realized and there's presumably millions of them if not billions <laughs> um, I always lose <laughs> track of scale in Star Wars stuff um, yes. but yeah so essentially there's been this massive shift in the power balance and like Hux has seized control 
Like, do you think this was a bloodless transition? Or do no. you think there was backstabbing <laughs> and treachery and no. patricide involved? <laughs> I, I think, I mean, especially since we have the comparison with Kylo Ren killing his father, that mm. General Hux possibly killed his father. And knowing what we know about Ray Sloan, I bet that those two got rid of Brendel. But I mean, it could have went a different way, but I can totally imagine them like scheming to get rid of Brendel and then you know Armitage takes over the show mm. um I don't know what happened to Ray Sloan she could still be a figure you know in Hawks's life just kind of a background figure mm. but she could have like be retired at this point because I don't know I don't remember how old she was in um Empire's End but she was already kind of getting a bit older mm. so yeah you know, she's depicted with some gray hair and stuff yeah I think she's middle-aged in yeah Empire's End. okay um, yeah, did you have any ideas about that, Kirsty, or is it something you'd rather just leave happily to the books and stuff to tell you? Um, I had that kind of gone with the headcanon that you guys were talking about, that he probably did, because, again, coming back to the idea that he's a foil to Kylo, mm. um, the idea of Hux killing his father and feeling no remorse about it at all, mm. and like almost relishing in it, and the, the, you know, the same way that we kind of see him with that sadist element of, mm. with the children... Yeah, I mean, and and you wouldn't even blame him, right? Because no, no, because his Brendel, father no. is so horrible. Yeah, oh. I don't think anyone will be shedding tears for Brendel Hux, right? So it's not like you would um, feel like Hux was justified in killing someone, of course, but um, it's just it makes sense for the villain story, right? That he yeah. would kind yeah, of and the opposite of Kylo, who he finds he kills his father, which is a very tragic death, and then finds out that oh he does feel something he's he's not like Hux you know mm. so that can further that comparison there yeah. yeah for sure um I find it really interesting how Snoke fits into all this as well oh yeah because obviously in the Force Awakens I really need to stop saying obviously <laughs> <laughs> um, in the Force Awakens Hux and Kylo they are the pair of people who are in communication with Snoke you don't see anyone else communicating with Snoke at all. Like, they're the only ones who have an audience with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's clear that they both hold a very special position in relation <laughs> to Snoke. Oh, God. <laughs> don't, Melissa. Don't. It's okay. No, I won't say anything. <laughs> like, did you know that there is, like, Snoke and Kylo shipping, Kirsty? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of is that course. what you were thinking of? Is that what you were snickering, Melissa? Many reasons. But... <laughs> I... I do a cursory look at AO3 tags every now and then and <laughs> there's stuff with Kylux and Snoke for sure like and, and you know it has that it it kind of the subtext kind of hints at that right that as you I think that you're going on to talk about there's this creepy old ugly mysterious man or whatever he is with these young conventionally attractive Mm. men competing for his attention like that has sinister connotations yeah it does unfortunately <laughs> yeah so. no um sorry guys i kind of lowered the tone somewhat no, no they're obviously not going to go there <laughs> or at least in canon <laughs> right <laughs> but you can have these kind of coded elements and subtext because that seems to be what they're doing with Ben Solo's story. Like, you know, the whole, like, seduced to the dark side mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. taken away from his family and and being used. Like, that's what Han says to him, right? And yeah. you have to feel that way about Hux, too. Yeah, It's just you're not invited to sympathize with him in quite the same way because yeah. 
he's not a main character, but he's still there to continue those themes. Yeah, yeah. sure. So. Yeah, no, sorry, guys. What I was um, guessing at before I diverted us on that tangent <laughs> is that it's interesting that in the Aftermath trilogy, there is no hint of Snoke at all. Right. Um, there was lots of speculation that Rax was Snoke, but obviously that is not no. true. In Empire's End, um, you do get like those weird mysterious hints about the dark power from the mm. unknown regions and everything, which could be um, Snoke. It could be something yeah. else entirely, yeah. but still. Yeah, no, that's some um, actually what's leading towards. So it's clear. Oh, sorry. The... No, don't worry, it's fine. Um, so basically, it's like clear that the idea for the First Order that did not come from Snoke. That was an independent thing. So the seeds for the First Order came from Ray Sloan. Yeah. And like her ambition and desire to build something again from what was left of the Empire. Um, so that was like the starting point. But then they were obviously traveling to the unknown regions. And as Kirsty has touched upon, it's the suggestion in the Aftermath books is that there's some kind of sinister dark presence hiding out there. And so my educated guess at this stage would be that, yes, that is Snoke. Um, and then obviously this new presence, which is the Imperial Remnant, enters his sphere. And then he sees an opportunity represented by this organisation. And so he essentially kind of like infiltrates it. And I reckon he perhaps infiltrates it through Armitage. Yeah. Um, because Armitage is definitely his like main connection point to the first order like armitage is the one who seems to be in control and he's the one who commands the men and he's the one who gives the big big speech like ordering everyone to fire the weapon it's not snoke um so it does seem like snoke is the one who's in control but only in control in a very like discreet and subtle manner um yeah yeah, i think he's in kind of both their heads you know Mm. hux's head like if it's i think it's true because they have to encounter snoke at some point since he became such a big figure in in the first order and if if they do encounter snoke at that point at the end of empire's end that means he had you know access to armitage when he was quite young and vulnerable and if Mm. he gets you know an armitage's head then you can easily, you know, gain control over him or become like at least an authority figure over him. Mm. And that could probably be the same case with, you know, Kylo Ren. Yeah. So we obviously see from Empire Zen that Armitage has lots of fear and self-doubt and he's obviously very insecure because of the nature of his upbringing and his relationship with his father. So I could see like Snoke preying on all those kinds of things and like promising him like great power and great influence, like if he helps him and if he like gives him this way into the First Order, um, which I reckon is probably going to be broadly similar to what happens with Ben Solo, um, but handled in different ways because obviously they're very different men with very different backgrounds. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's likely to be about continuing that parallel between them. And just really encouraging everyone to like look at them and contrast them in that way. Um, right, yeah. So then, I guess we can probably move on to Hux in Force Awakens. Um, yeah. So Melissa, because I expect you have a photographic memory of all this. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> well, when do we first see Hux in the Force Awakens? What is his entrance? His entrance is um when Kylo walks out from interrogating Poe Dameron 
and um, Hux is waiting to see the results of um, Kylo's interrogation of Poe. Mm-hmm. And um, that's like the first, we, he barely says anything, but it's like the first glimpse of him. Yes. Um, I'd say the first really, really memorable scene is the one of Hux and Kylo walking together side by side on the way to talk to Snoke. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, already, we're starting to, you know, compare the two because they're walking next to each other like that. I mean, that's, you know, the movie's kind of, automatically directing our attention to kind of compare the two i think no absolutely um i remember being struck by hux in his first appearance some um, just outside poe's interrogation room <laughs> um because of how fabulous his clothes were like he is a really really nice space tailor do you know what i mean yes. like just the way like his jacket is like hanging over his shoulders and stuff he looks like he's just walked off the catwalk yeah <laughs> and it's also interesting because you know kylo's walk around like with this you know badder battle torn cape mm. and here we have a hux with barely a hair out of place so yes. you know that's the first you know contrast between the two of them yeah doesn't hux's jacket also seem to make his shoulders appear broader yes he's got shoulder pads going on there. <laughs> nice that's so cute <laughs> it is cute power dressing <laughs> because if you look at donald gleason's shoulders and you put that next to a picture of um, him in costume it's, it's pretty obvious that you know there's some padding going on there yeah <laughs> um yeah didn't like donald give like some kind of interview where he said that like in in his head, like he had this whole like backstory for Hux, and like one of the things is that he's like really really meticulous and almost like OCD. Yeah, was about and, everything. Yeah, and that, that um, I actually have the quote in front of me. He that um, he says Hux isn't obsessive and probably doesn't sleep much. Mm. And then he also go on to went on to say that um, he liked playing Hux because it allowed him to explore the notion of authority. Mm. So he must be someone completely different than you know Donal is you know in real life. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. Yeah, so about that whole relationship between Kylo and Hux, like, <laughs> who do you reckon hates the other person more? Does Hux hate Kylo more or does Kylo hate Hux more? Go. <laughs> I reckon Hux hates Kylo more just mm. because the first over- order has been Channel Hux's entire life mm. versus um, Kylo Ren had a life before he came to the first order. So um, Huck sees, you know, his whole existence being impinged on by this, you know, outsider mm. slash rival, you know. And I mean, I'm sure Kylo hates Hux almost just as much, but I think it like hurts even more for Hux because the First Order is like his whole existence. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, there are some quotes in the novelization where Kylo's thinking about Hux and like calling him a slimy sycophant and that, <laughs> and that he's thinking about Hux but then it's like oh I shouldn't be thinking about Hux I should be thinking about the girl because you know um so, so it's cool. almost like he he hates Hux but also considers him completely beneath him yeah 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 and I'm sure Hux feels the same way right it's just we don't get that side of Hux like we don't get right, that we don't get in his head as much as yeah. Kylo picks Kylo's one of you know the leads Mm. yeah yeah no i think it's really interesting because of where they come from and i absolutely think hux would perceive like kylo as this kind of like usurper who like has risen to this incredibly powerful uh, and prestigious position without with what hux would perceive to be little effort and yeah yeah his part 
because mm. as we mentioned before like their backgrounds are so different like yeah. kylo was the child of a princess and like a war hero and he was born to the winning side perhaps more importantly as hux will have always grown up knowing that the empire was crushingly defeated and like always harboring this festering resentment and hatred of the Republic and of everything that Leia and Luke and Han had done. And then Leia's kid turns up <laughs> and yes, he's nominally working for them at this point, but I'm sure that as far as Hux is concerned, that's probably not good enough is like, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, and if we think about how much Hux seems to hate Kylo in The Force Awakens, I think in The Last Jedi, he's going to hate him so much more. Because, oh, I can't wait. Yeah, I think he's going to blame him for Starkiller Base being destroyed, right? Yeah. I mean, because um, Hux didn't do anything wrong. Like He's right. pretty much the one through the whole movie that he did his job the whole time and he didn't like mess up. Kylo was the one who kind of, you know, got distracted a bit and... You know, things and then Phasma, of course, is probably the main one to blame in the end. But yeah, Hux, you know, well, I'm just saying in, in that case of Star Killer Base being destroyed. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a tweet from Pablo Hidalgo at some point that they would, someone was asking him about um, Kylo's scar and what that might look like in oh, yeah. the next film. And he said something about um Hux not letting him get to Bacter in time for it to actually heal. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> Which seems very in character because he yeah, just very imagine in character. Being... Yeah. I bet yeah. he'd probably watch it fester. Yeah. Because he's been sent by Snoke to pick him up, you know? Yeah. Like this is something and I I know he he goes with stormtroopers who probably actually bring Kylo to the ship, but it's still like yeah. Oh, you're a general, but this is my direction to you. You need to bring Kylo Ren to me for his training. That doesn't that doesn't seem like it should be Hux's priority at that point. But obviously, he yeah, has it's to interesting him. that like, and then Kylo had like a tracker on him, and like Hux used that <gasps> to find him or something like that. And but yes, it was I believe the stormtroopers that carried him. Because I think I don't know. I remember reading something about it. I think it was in the novelization. Like they actually cut the scene out of the movie, but. Like, Hux did rendezvous with him with a bunch of stormtroopers and pretty much just, you know, glare at him. Mm. <laughs> Would you guys say that um, when they're in front of Snoke, Hux and Kylo are both, like, little children, like, fighting out before Dad? Like, so yeah. they are so immature. <laughs> it is ridiculous. Like, I, my one of my favourite scenes is just after Ray's interrogation, when Kylo's there, and, and he's like, oh, she's powerful in the forest, oh god, like, please help me, Snoke, please help me. And then Hux comes in, and you can see Kylo's like, ah, I don't want to see my face. And he's, and like, he's like, oh crap, the look on his face is like, oh no, it's him. Yes, exactly, and he's like, kind of like, trying to hide his face, and then it's he's like, looking... Ugh. Then he's looking straight ahead because he doesn't want to look him in the eye. And it's so funny. It's so and awkward. Hux is like, oh, he, he thought the girl was all we needed. <laughs> like, just clearly trying to get him into trouble. Yeah, and then, like, and like, then it's, it's paddling. The end of that scene when Hux is given an order to go to go away and, like, you know, get re- get the weapon ready or whatever it is. And he just, like, looks at Kylo as he's turning with this total sneer. Like I'm yes. better than you. Oh, that that the look, DM. <laughs> and it's an interesting reversal. So I think in the previous scene that they'd both had with Snoke, like Kylo was the one who was like in Daddy's good books at yes. that point. Um, and so like at that point, it's like Hux is like, ha, got you. 
Because now he is the one who's doing things right and he's the one with uh, Snoke's approval. Mm. Um, so yeah, like that just that whole strain of the film just tickles me. It's obviously a very minor element, but I find it very amusing. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> um, what do we make of Hux's incredible speech against the Republic as he's about to fire um, the Starkiller weapon? That's probably like the moment of his life that at that point, like his life is building up to that moment. So you can, you know, kind of like how like beauty queens, it kind of reminds me of it. <laughs> like they, they practice their whole life dancing and dieting and, you know, yeah. to be Miss that America. One big show. Yeah. And, yeah. and then they have, when they finally win, they have like the one moment in the spotlight where they give their victory speech. And for, mm. for Hux, that was the moment when he fires the weapon and, you know, makes his big speech to, to, the galaxy so i kind of see it like that that's like the big moment of his life and then Mm. of course it goes downhill from there but that's pretty much like the peak for him at that point at least he got to have that moment yes it's true yeah and i do think that that moment is going to have actual serious ramifications for the last jedi which it should because he just blew up the center of government it would be like if you had a series of films set in the real world and in film one they blew up the Houses of Parliament mm. and then in film two there was absolutely no reference to this and it had no bearing on the plot. Yeah, no, that wouldn't make any sense. Exactly, so yeah, it's not going to happen. Um, the way he talks is so over the top, like yeah. <laughs> such, yeah. such bluster and mm. anger. Like, you can I feel think the... they, they interviewed Donal and like this, Donal said the director kept telling him to, to be even like more over the top with it mm. until like he just gave like the craziest you know version he could like even if, if you still frame that speech you can even see like his spit literally flying out of his mouth like they yes. had him just go for it and like they went with like the most extreme version because like Donald had done like you know more nuanced versions of that and they're like no we just this is this character's moment we just want you to go for it pretty much mm. I actually watched um that like The Force Awakens with a German friend and, and like it's quite fascinating to watch her watching that scene like because I saw like the cogs turn in her head and then like towards the end of it like just as the weapon was being fired said it's a very good Hitler impersonation yeah <laughs> yeah and it really is like if you watch any footage of Hitler delivering these speeches they are done in exactly that same mode, like complete all that like aggression and these ridiculously exaggerated gestures and this incredible like, anger and passion in the voice. So it's not subtle at all, but I do think it works for the nature. Yeah, of and I think that goes with like the the common villain trope because ever since you know obviously the Second World War and like Hollywood and other films like the Nazi characterization is the quick way to show the audience that oh this is a bad guy this is a villain so yeah. I think it's from the long tradition of like Nazi esque villains in yeah. film it's like lazy shorthand pretty much exactly but it's effective it's, so. yes, yes. And I guess at least he's an English accent. Can you imagine how awful it would be if they all had like comical, like villain German accents? Oh no, it would be so bad. But oh no, I, I think it, it works. Like the the posh accent works because it you know says a lot about Hux's character. That and then from Hux's point of view, of course, he's the hero in this narrative. So it's mm. just you think about it that way. You know, he he's doing he's exacting vengeance on the government that has you know terrorized his his side for years Mm. yeah no definitely they obviously felt 
like completely like humiliated by the republic yes um for decades like basically hux's entire life so i think it's natural and you can understand why there's so much like hatred and resentment there like obviously it's not good no but it makes sense on a character level but it's interesting to like shift the perspectives between the characters and then like who's the villain who's the hero kind of changes around and that's probably part of why i love villains so much because you kind of get to do that in a way that you know you're not hurting anyone just by you know going to someone else's mind and saying oh how is this the situation look from you know his point of view mm. yeah no totally um yeah and then i guess um <laughs> Shortly after that moment of triumph, things <laughs> nice go, yeah, things go a bit pear shaped, you could say, to put it kindly. Um, when obviously the good guys they get in Starkiller base and they go bang bang and the whole thing blows up. Um, and yeah, I must say, like at the end of the Force Awakens, after all this is going down, Hux actually seems pretty calm, going by what I'd expect expect he says the collapse of the planet has begun and you can tell he sounds a bit like oh god yeah he's upset but he's still like collected with himself <laughs> yeah exactly he's upset but not distraught and hysterical mm. um i think he's like partly expecting to like, go down with the whole thing and then snoke tells him to go get kylo <laughs> yeah i do think it's interesting that you have that um that other soldier say that even Hux is gone. Yeah, you know, when... yeah. That tells yeah. you a lot that like, oh, because like Hux would normally be the one that would, you know, go down with the ship. And mm. in this case, they're like, oh, this things have really gotten bad because even Hux, you know, has left. Mm. Also suggests how important he is because it's like he's yeah. almost the glue. Like yeah. holding everyone together and giving people the faith they need to keep on going. I bet this. he's like a rallying figure too. I bet he gives like little... I mean, I know in the Lego game, he would always give like little announcements over the speakers. I bet mm-hmm. he's the type that he, he likes to hear himself talk. And so yeah. like they're all used to hearing his little like rallying, rallying pep talk speeches. I can imagine that yeah. he does stuff like that. I think in Before the Awakening, um, like in, there's different short stories about Finn, Ray and Poe. Mm. And in the one about um, in the one about Finn... Um, I think it mentions that they all have to like watch these like propaganda videos like from Hux <laughs> or something every day. <laughs> um, I can totally see it. he'd be so into like hearing himself talk. It's yeah, so funny. <laughs> no, so I think that's probably another key element of his persona that we're going to see explored more in the books and stuff. Yes. This like narcissistic streak. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I bet they're pretty boring if you're a stormtrooper, but yeah, I bet yeah. they're like the best thing in the world for you. Myself. I'd be like, oh my god, me, I'd be like, yes, give me a whole DVD of his propaganda <laughs> speeches. <laughs> the might and what glory of the First Order, Volume One, Volume One Fifty. <laughs> yes, at least there's a small market for it. <laughs> yeah, no. So ha- I guess we touched upon this earlier. But what do we think Hux feels about Kylo Ren at the end of The Force Awakens? I think he thinks that Kylo was like an idiot <laughs> like, and like messed a lot of stuff up. Yes. And so he's probably really resentful and that's probably part of the reason why he, he leaves this festering scar on his face. Mm. I mean, that's what I think. Yeah. How about you, Kirsty? Yeah, I think he's, you know, when he's talking about how Kylo messed up the mission because he was distracted by the girl. I think it's going to be more of that kind of thing that he just mm-hmm. feels like Kylo completely dropped the ball and 
set everything in motion. I don't know how much he's going to focus on Phasma, even though she obviously screwed up as well. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think it's going to intensify their feelings of antagonism towards each mm, other. Yeah, yeah. So it's all going to kind of come to a head at some point. Yeah. I think back to like one of those early scenes with Hux and Kylo, where um, Hux says, careful, Ren, that your personal interests don't interfere with orders from Leader Snoke, or something along those lines. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think that's heavy foreshadowing for what happens later on, because a lot of yeah. Kylo's behaviour with Rey is very much about him pursuing his personal interests. So it's clear that for some nebulous, as yet unknown reasons, he has a very intense interest in the skull that is beyond his orders. Um, in almost all respects. So yeah, he's not being like a diligent like soldier of the military like machine, like in his pursuit of Ray. That's just Kylo being Kylo and doing his own like mysterious <laughs> thing. Um, so I think Hux would perceive that as like a gross dereliction of duty. Um, because the simple ma- truth of the matter is that Kylo does not feel like duty to the first order like nowhere near the level that Hux does because mm. for Hux the first order is his entire life. Yeah. Whereas for Kylo is I kind of sense like it's more a question of convenience. Yeah. Like he has decided the first order. A means to an end. Yeah. Is that and it's also because where where else is left for him? So he's betrayed yeah. like his mother, he's betrayed the Republic. So he can't go back there. So he's kind of stuck. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. I'm sure we're gonna like see all those themes and the questions of like people's loyalty followed up more in the last Jedi. I can't wait. Yes, it's gonna <laughs> yes. be very exciting. I'm so excited. Yeah, movie. same. It's this year. <laughs> yeah, less than a fortnight till the trailer. Oh, oh my gosh! Yes, big celebration. Yeah. Oh my gosh. How will you react if Hux is in the trailer? I honestly am gonna flip out. I, I hopefully <laughs> I'm not like anywhere with other people around. Even like I've been saying, even if I just see the side of his arm, I'm probably gonna lose it. So if he even like says if he says something, then I'm really gonna lose it. Nice. It'll be like a two-page like reaction on my blog or something. <laughs> His arm is in fabulous condition, and the tailoring <laughs> seems to be in peak form. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, right to move on. Then I guess we're on to the last part of the discussion, which is just a good be- part. <laughs> <laughs> you could call it that. Yeah, the gooey bits. Yeah, which is just going to be a chat about like how Hux is treated and perceived in Star Wars fandom. Mm. Very interesting. Um, yeah, like, Melissa, this is really your area. So, area. <laughs> so could you, like, set this out for people? Like, imagine that you're talking to people who know absolutely nothing about any of this craziness. So just, like, give them the gentle introduction. Gentle. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, in the fan community, um, you know, Hux has become, like, a more popular character in, you know, recent months. And even though he's... Um, you know, kind of a secondary character in the film. He's gotten really popular, especially as like a love interest opposite Kylo Ren, but not not exclusively. And like this kind of um, popularity was really helped by when Pablo Hidalgo tweeted a joke about Hux having a cat, Millicent the cat, and this kind of, you know, took off with people and they thought it was, you know, hilarious that the scary general would have like, you know, an orange tabby cat, you know, so that's kind of like 
it created like fandom hucks which is a bit different than how hucks was you know in the canon story like the, the people have their own little fandom head canons about him like you know he, him having a cat and things like that mm. yeah and it's amazing how far like just the <laughs> suggestion of this guy having a fluffy pet ginger cat goes towards like humanizing him in people's minds yeah. and people going like oh he's so cute <laughs> And I mean, I think I can see that as um, what makes going along with what makes it so appealing to write him as a love interest in people's fan fiction, if that, whether that's with Kylo or not. I mean, it's very popular to pair him with Kylo, but that's not, you know, the only case. And, you know, he's also very popular versus, you know, in self-insert stories where the reader likes to see themselves with General Hux. But I, I think part of the reason that he's so popular as a romantic interest is because his personality makes him the opposite of what is generally accepted as, you know, the stereotypical romantic interest. Mm-hmm. And this makes the potential for interesting plot development, I think, because he's cold, emotionally repressed. And it's really interesting, you know, to see someone like that break out of their shell. I mean, look at the Sherlock fandom. Like, Sherlock is portrayed as someone that's only interested in logic. And people just love to write about him, like, being in a romantic relationship or Mm. emotional and, you know, being, you know, different than that. So I see that as, like, kind of a popular thing in fandom and also just in classic stories. Like, you know, in Chain Air with Mr. Rochester being this kind of cold character that breaks out of his shell and he becomes the romantic interest. So mm. I kind of see that, you know, as a reason why General Hux is so appealing in that way. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think people like these characters where they feel there's like something different from the norm. Yeah. So I think there's obviously like the conventional like love interest or romantic lead. Um like the character who you're meant to find attractive so i guess like poe for example poe yeah, is he's very attractive that. yeah he, he is really attractive but like it's interesting that there doesn't seem to be the same like huge like enduring fan base mm-hmm. around that character that there is like around say like kylo or even hux um yeah. and like i think people they just sometimes do prefer these characters where there is this like either they're straight up evil or they're very like complex and tortured, yeah, yeah. as with Kylo. So I think some people just find that more exciting and interesting to write about. And I think that's why like the pairing of Kylux, Kylo Ren, and Hux has been so you know such a lethal combination. Because I was talking about you know the the cold hearted male finding love. Well, in this case, it's two like kind of you know cold hearted males, at least from the outside. And they're coming together, so it's not just one, but times two. So that makes it, you know, a whole interesting dynamic that you know certain fans like to explore. Mm. Yeah. Did didn't you say um you had like some kind of question about Hux in fandom, Kirsty? Well, I was just wondering if people like Melissa, who have blogs kind of devoted to exploring this character, uh, feel sometimes like they attract some negativity toward especially on Tumblr there's this kind yeah. of trend that if you if you like villains or are interested in them as characters um you can kind of attract this hate as if people think that you're condoning their behavior or yeah. are somehow like not interested in the heroes as much like for yeah fandom policing kind of yeah yeah no I have seen that a lot like not a lot personally but I have seen a lot of like you know 
blogs I follow and just people that not just Kyle shippers but people that like general hooks in general have sometimes attracted you know negative attention because you know they're like oh you're apologizing for his actions you know you shouldn't condone him like he's pretty much you know just you know figure for like a figurehead for a Nazi character pretty much when really it's just um, about liking villains and finding something um, that you know you can't access in different types of characters. For example, um, I like villains because they're completely different than myself, and I you know kind of can access that kind of feeling of power without you know having real consequences in real life. Because I'm not gonna you know go in real life and blow something up just because. <laughs> I'm like, oh, look at Hux blowing up this planet in the scene, <laughs> you know? So yeah. it's just, I've always really liked villains and like in Star Wars and in other media as well. And it's just because it's kind of the opposite how I actually am in real life. So it helps me kind of get into the headspace of someone completely different. And I just find that really interesting because we don't have to like characters that are like us all the time. I mean, that would be boring, right? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I've noticed in the Star Wars fandom, there's certain villains where it's acceptable to like them. You know, characters like Tarkin, who are obviously villains and don't have any of their own really redemptive qualities, as mm. interesting as they are, especially in like um, the books Tarkin and Catalyst and Rogue One and yeah. that kind of thing. Um, they are seen as somehow more acceptable to like or be interested in because they're older and there isn't this convolution with the idea of a villain being attractive. Oh, um, yeah. You know, and you get that a lot. Uh, in terms of like female fans being interested in these villains it's oh the assumption that you're only interested because they're attractive and that certainly plays a part but it's not it certainly does and it's obviously a conscious thing to add in from the creators because like we were saying earlier Hux could have been played by a much older actor but they chose to go with Donal Donal Uh, who's been like the romantic lead in like the last few movies he'd done before that like and now all of a sudden cast like this like they know what they're doing mm. like they know he's an attractive young actor so right i'm guessing that they even they anticipated kylox being a thing as well not, right? i'm not sure but yeah it is possible i mean they put those two characters together yeah it seems like you get a slash ship like that like a big juggernaut one in every fandom so mm. any not necessarily jj abrams but someone at lucasfilm was probably <laughs> aware that that was going to blow up yeah <laughs> I think they'd be very naive if they didn't have, like, even a sneaking suspicion. Like, sure. I doubt it's, like, part of the mandate, like, create, like, a um, tense and compelling relationship between two young, attractive male characters so that there will be shipping. <laughs> <laughs> like, although it's certainly not beyond the realms of possibility, so... <laughs> yeah. I mean, if one of those characters had been female, then I think, like, it might be almost automatically assumed that there was something going on there, so, but... <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, Phasma doesn't seem to be someone who's shipped as much, but that's because you never see her face. She is shipped with Hux um, when she is shipped, though. There are There is a following for that pairing. <laughs> they do have one scene together. so Presumably that... it's nowhere near as popular as Kylux, though. No, no. But, I mean, it's Kylux isn't the only kind of shipping possibility with the, our general. <laughs> 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 I should say my channel, maybe not our channel. <laughs> Your possession. Your now. colors are showing, Melissa. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, no, I guess um, 
like outside of Tumblr and stuff, it's interesting. So I've seen people respond to like Hux and like Donald's performance, and I have actually seen like a lot of negativity. Like, but it's in framed in a very different way right. from like any of the criticisms you'd find on, say, Tumblr. Yeah. Because obviously, it's not this concern about oh, how dare you like a Nazi? You're a Nazi because you like a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> Which you actually find on Tumblr because it's Tumblr. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But elsewhere, like I've seen lots of complaints about how they can take this character seriously because he's so young, mm-hmm. and they feel like he's almost like a child playing in dress dress up in his father's clothes, kind of because he right. just so mature. Um, like I did and- feel like that was part of the point. Yeah, no, definitely. No. I think it's part of the point, and it almost reminds me of this like response to Kylo because there's yeah. a very strange like facet to the response to the force awakens and that there's all this criticism of how it's so much like a new hope and how it's so derivative of the older films and just like steeped in nostalgia and yet when they do do things that are generally different so they have like this extremely powerful general be like a young man who doesn't look particularly intimidating yeah like or frightening and they have the main villain literally cry and have pretty raven black hair (laughs) um and like have all these like intense emotional moments like when they do daring risky things like that you actually see a lot of backlash to that yeah you can't win either way if you copy the past and you're copying and then if you do something different oh you're messing it up so it's like people never be completely satisfied exactly i think it's a good illustration of like why you can't take any of these kinds of criticisms too seriously yeah because Yeah, people, like, they will always find things to take issue with. No, back to Donald's a casting choice. I think that, like, his casting is, you know, a deliberate choice um, because that is a big part of his character is Donald's physical presence Mm. because it shows that the power that Hux has is not through, you know, being, like, stacked like Kylo or, you know, being able to have the force you know he's a non-force sensitive character but his um power comes through his um his mind and his ability to manipulate and control others and his Mm -hmm. kind of tactical brain you know so that just shows us that general hux gets his power from like a different place than kylo ren does Mm. because you know we see his he's kind of like maybe weaker looking in his physical presence but um his mind and his ability to control people or you know controlling his stormtroopers for example Mm. who could like just jump up and like rip him to shreds you know is different than kylo ren who could just you know use the force you know and fight back against someone who would attack him physically yeah so you can see that he gets his power from a different place yeah no, definitely. I really think the point with Hux is that he's meant to be frightening, not because he's physically intimidating, so he's clearly not. Yeah. It's because of the sheer strength of his convictions and how definitely. he seems to take this... like His life mission. Yeah, it's his life mission, and he seems to like take this like sadistic glee from the knowledge that he's just wiped <laughs> out several planets. Um, and... Yeah, like, that is what's frightening about the character. Like, he wouldn't be able to beat you up in a fight, but, like, he would have no qualms about, like, blowing up your city. (laughs) And and I remember Donal writing about I remember this Donal interview about which would which one of his characters would win against each other in a fight. (laughs) And, um, it was the, I can't remember his name, the one, one of his movies where he was in that survival 
kind of situation. But anyway, um, he's said that Hux would be the type to like stab you in the back and fight underhanded and just, you know, cheat pretty much and, you know, not fight in a, like an honorable way. Yeah. You know. No, which is exactly what I would expect from him. <laughs> <laughs> but oh. it's just nice that Donald has his own headcanon about General Hux because it shows that, you know, some people say, oh, Hux doesn't have a characterization. He's, you mm. know, an empty character. But if the ca- actor has had that much time to think through, like, what Hux is really like and what he would be in certain situations, you can see there's a deliberate effort to, like, build a character here mm. and that there is a characterization there. Yeah, sure. Right, like, is there anything else we'd like to say about, like, Hux and fandom and stuff? Obviously, I know we could go on for I, I hours and hours. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but, um, like, would you guys agree it feels like a natural endpoint? It's like we generally try to keep um spotlights to around this length. I'm happy. Okay. Yeah. Kirsty? Yeah, I've said pretty much all I need to say. So. Okay, awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how the rest of the story will go for Hux. Oh, and... I can't wait to see Hux. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, definitely. It's going to be very um, thrilling to see. I um, think he makes it to the last movie, but if he doesn't, as long as it's like a dramatic scene, you know, where he, you know, gets to play out his character arc, then I'll be happy with it. Yeah. Fingers and toes crossed. Yes, everything crossed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on, Melissa. We well, really thanks enjoyed for having me. You. Thank yeah. you. And if you guys want to read more Hux ramblings, I'm on at Hux fan blog on Tumblr. Awesome. Like, that is definitely your number one destination. <laughs> Hux. Well, thank you. <laughs> There's lots of other good blogs on Tumblr, but yeah. I just, I like to really focus on Hux. So yeah. if you're interested in that, then you can check me out. Exactly. Yeah. No, thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you, guys. You guys yeah. are amazing. Oh, thank you. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> cool. Right, you should have just listened to a spotlight discussion between Kirsty, myself, and Melissa, who is at Hux Fan Blog. Um, and yeah, I hope you found that a fun discussion. I actually really enjoyed it, and I was surprised by how much there's, there was to say about a character who has, I don't know, like three minutes of screen time in <laughs> Force Awakens. Yeah, there's been a lot of interesting reactions to the character. Mm. So, yeah, just as much about fandom itself as the story itself i suppose so precisely there's been lots of that discourse (laughs) (laughs) okay right and now for the next segment which is it came from reddit um right and yeah just this is something that's a bit like a catch-all like because there's been lots of stuff floating around on reddit recently um especially on the star wars speculation subreddit that has been about the new visual encyclopedia which is yet another one of those totems of Star Wars merchandise that's we're all going to inevitably scan for details and clues as to what the bigger picture is. Um, and yeah, like lots of interesting stuff is being hinted at and coming out through this book, or at least the pages that people are photographing in advance. And one particularly intriguing part is that there's a page that's come out that says that Law Santeca received the map fragment that shows Luke's location from Luke directly before Luke went into hiding. Um, Mm. And I think this actually contravenes our prior understanding of what was up with that. Yeah. Because I think we believed that Law Santagra had actually been going around hunting for this map rather than like just sitting on it for years, which 
apparently that's the case. So yeah, what did you think when you saw this, Kirsty? It did surprise me because, like you say, the Force Awakens kind of like leads you to believe at the beginning that he's just found it, and then Leia hears that he's found it and sends Poe to get it from him. Mm. But if he's had it for years, it's like, why didn't he contact Leia or let her know? Yeah. Uh, he just kind of sat on it for like five or six years, right? Because Bloodline set six years before The Force Awakens. Mm. So it's a quite a decent chunk of time, presumably. Unless Luke disappeared much closer to the beginning of The Force Awakens and we're just not aware of that. Mm. But again, that really changes people's perspectives of, of the story. Yeah, it's very curious. I wonder if he like gave Tekko like instructions saying it's for emergencies only. You need to wait <laughs> serious shit goes down, man. <laughs> like otherwise do not share this with anyone because I'm busy doing important stuff and I can't be doing with distractions, okay? But, <laughs> isn't the part that's pretty important the fact that his nephew turned to the dark side? <laughs> like cuz cuz Han says, right? Like that after, you know, one boy ruined it all and Luke Luke went looking for the first Jedi Temple. So it kind of sounds like that was in response to what happened. Yeah. He disappeared. But maybe that's not the case at all. I think that is what happened. But I think maybe... Like, I reckon it might be the case that Law Santeco was the only other person besides Luke who actually had a solid idea of what Luke was going off to do. I'm just very surprised that he told Law Santeca and didn't tell Leia. Like, it still doesn't seem quite right to me. I know that's been the story from the beginning, but it's Mm. just, it's hard for me to reconcile that idea of Luke and Leia's relationship, that there's that distance. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I totally know what you mean. It's very strange because obviously we see them be so close in the original trilogy and Luke will do anything for Han and Leia. Um, right up to and including abandoning his Jedi training to go and save them because he thinks they're about to die. Um, but yeah, it's odd because in the new canon, they seem to be establishing this recurring theme of how distant Luke is and how Leia has no idea what he's doing or what he's getting up to. It's like that comes through very strongly in Bloodline. She'll get the sense that she like has very little knowledge of what Luke's up to and like what the nature of his work is. Um so I do kind of wonder they're going to be going down that line where just life took them in, in such different directions that, like, in the end, like, Luke didn't feel like he could talk to Leia about this stuff, but presumably because it wasn't something that she had much knowledge of or insight into because she never trained in the Force herself. And obviously, while Law Santeca is not a Jedi or anything, he is clearly like a follower of the force and he's a member of the church of the force. So he'd have that like insight and understanding that Leia wouldn't, which might well be why Luke would entrust Tekka with this trust and in particular the map piece. Mm. It just, it, it all seems even stranger that as you say, Leia had very little idea of what Luke had been up to, Mm. but then decided to send Ben to Luke. Like, she must have been really desperate at that point. Yeah, that's what it says to me. It says that this woman, like, felt like she was out of options. And even though she knew she was taking a gamble in sending her son to Luke, she felt like that was the only thing left for her to do. Like, if he were not to fall to the dark side, which ended up happening anyway. Obviously, that's extrapolation. But you get the sense that she feared that dark influence on Ben before she sent him off to Luke, with that being a big part of her motive for sending him away. 
so I guess she was just terrified and she felt unqualified to help her son and she thought Luke could because she knew that he knew all about this mystical force stuff which he didn't and she thought that that would put Luke in a position to help Ben even though it clearly didn't yeah I'm just very interested to see if this little tidbit plays into The Last Jedi because Law Senteca is obviously dead now Mm. so anything that comes out would either be like another false vision or flashback or some brief exposition on Luke's part yeah I'd be shocked if the name Law Santeca were mentioned again in the films because the vast majority of the audience won't have a clue who that is. I don't think his name is even said in The Force Awakens. No, it's not. Yeah, so it would be meaningless to people. Um, I think the most you could expect is just some indication of the circumstances in which he left, Um, like, but without really like linking it up too overtly to what happens at the start of The Force Awakens. I'm sure there'll be reams and reams of words written about it, but it'll be in like a novel or a comic or something. Mm. Um, yeah. And another interesting thing to have come out from this book, um, it's not in the notes, but it's just something I noticed also on the Star Wars Speculation subreddit, um, is there's an entry for Jedi Generals, um, and it's basically a little mention of the Clone Wars. And it says, Guardians of Peace for the Republic, the Jedi become leaders of the clone army during the Clone Wars. While the war rages, the Jedi have no time to consider whether this role is truly the will of the Force. Few survive the Jedi purge at the war's end. Um, Yeah, and I, I just find that line interesting about the fact that they don't really have time to contemplate whether this is actually what should be happening, like with the Jedi acting as military commanders. <laughs> Um, yeah, I do think that fits into a lot of what goes on in the prequels, right? That the the idea that the Jedi should not be taking such a military type role. Yeah. Um, because is it Qui Gon who says like I'm not going to fight your war for you? Like that's not what we're here for. Um, but yeah, that does seem to be an idea that that George Lucas set up in the prequels that they had lost their way and become mm. far too attached to politics and kind of sitting in their ivory tower. Yeah, and I can definitely see it being extrapolated upon, like, in the sequel trilogy. Um, So I do think we're going to get some kind of investigation of the nature of the Force and an exploration of, well, has have things been done right and what could have been done differently. And then the first question is from Mike via email. Hello there, Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi. I was listening to your discussion of Disney Lucasfilm's roadmap for the future films on episode 23, and it suddenly occurred to me who might be a perfect fit to helm the proposed Obi-Wan spin-off. When the idea was first proposed, I thought it was a shame that Ryan Johnson had already been given a film, because he would have been a perfect fit as a director for what would have presumably been a Clint Eastwood-style western picture, and a show that nailed the genre in the best ways was Breaking Bad. The episodes of that show, which Johnson directed, were some of my favourites, and I highly recommend listening to the episodes of Kelly Dixon's Breaking Bad Insider podcast, on which he appears, and gives us a real window into his directing style, and, in my opinion, his brilliance. A logical next choice, however, was only one degree separated from Johnson. She also directed a handful of Breaking Bad's best episodes. The episodes entitled Salut, Tuhajili, and Buried, are perfect examples of what an Obi-Wan movie should feel like. She also directed several episodes of Game of Thrones, and more recently Westworld, and had previously been tabbed to direct the DCEU's Wonder Woman project until she ultimately passed on the job. That woman is Michelle McLaren. 
and I thought she would be a fantastic choice for the Obi-Wan film, given its likely genre. What would you think of her directing this film, and do you think it's possible that even if she doesn't get this particular project, that Johnson has already suggested her to be on the shortlist at Lucasfilm? Given his glowing words about her in the past, I can easily imagine it, and given her mastery of smaller, more intimate stories, she seems a perfect choice. I must say, I rather like the idea of a woman directing an unexpected film as well, if for no other reason than to subvert the trite expectation of the romantic project being the likely candidate for a woman. Anyway, love the show and look forward to each new episode. I'm currently binging on past episodes, having only just discovered you. And I'm having the most fun. Michael from Chicago. Oh, that is such a fantastic email. Thank you so much, Michael. We really appreciate you getting in touch. Um, so yeah, Kirsty, what did you make of this? Um, well, I have to confess, I haven't seen any of her work. Mm. Um, I don't, I've watched a few episodes of Breaking Bad, but I, aside from the Ryan Johnson ones as well, but I don't know who directed those. So it's totally possible that one of those was one of those ones that he mentions, but I'm not sure. And I have yet to watch Westworld, as you know, even though you obviously have more experience with that show. So maybe you can comment on that better. Yeah. But it sounds from the email like she is a fantastic choice. So I'm going to have to go away and do, do some research. Yeah. No, um, I wouldn't like pretend that I'm super familiar with um, Michelle McLaren's work, but I definitely have seen the episodes of Westworld and Game of Thrones that she's directed. Um, and from what I recall of them, they're all really impressive. And she clearly has a lot of talent and a great handle on like the narrative and like the story structure and yeah, like I just feel that I'd be really confident in her ability to pull off like a Star Wars film because she's clearly highly accomplished. Um, and I really do think it's very important that we do see like women directors who have more of like a background in television directing given that chance to make the leap into movies. Mm-hmm. Um, because like I know in the past there's been comments about, well, there aren't too many female directors and stuff. But there are actually loads of really great female directors, but a lot of them haven't been given the opportunity to go from television into feature films. Yeah, and I feel like that should be changing because there is so much amazing television right now. Yes. You don't you don't need to have that divide between the two mediums now. Yeah. So, yeah, if people can make the leap more easily, then that would be a great way to encourage and get more female directors in movies because... As you say, it's easier to find those opportunities with TV, but that shouldn't then mean that they're limited there for the rest of their career. Mm. Uh. Yeah, they're definitely like, um, there are loads of great women working in TV. So I really love Jessica Jones, for example, which is um, showrun by Melissa Rosenberg. Um, and I know for season two, they're actually looking to have every episode directed by a woman which is really, really cool. And I think that might mm. be the first time like a mainstream TV project like this has actually tried to pull off such like a sea change behind the scenes in terms of the like getting women behind the camera on the episodes. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. No, it's really, really cool. Um, So there's lots of affirmative action going on. Um, But yeah, it would be awesome to see that affirmative action in TV start to like filter through into the movie world. Um. And yeah, like I think we mentioned it last week when we were talking about these rumours about the possible projects Lucasfilm might have coming up. Um, 
but I totally agree that it'd be great to see a woman direct the kind of story that people might traditionally perceive as being more masculine and more male orientated. I don't even know why it would be considered more masculine because yes, Obi-Wan is a man, but it's not like women don't like him as a character or aren't interested in him. I think it's this like whole idea of like it being like a Western type of thing. And I think like Westerns, they are considered to be like the epitome of like masculine filmmaking. Like generally, like rightly or wrongly. Very like it's surely, yeah, very traditionally, but I don't think that they would go for a straightforward traditional Western with Obi Wan Kenobi, would they? <laughs> <laughs> Complete with like a saloon stuff. <laughs> um No, I definitely don't think so, but I guess it's just that thing where there's clearly like the implicit suggestion that they're not going to make any special effort to get a woman on board for that movie, but they are going to make a special effort to get a woman on board for this young adult romance movie. Um, And it's like, well, why couldn't you have done that for the Obi-Wan movie? Because like you say, there's nothing necessarily that has to be inherently masculine about that film. And even if there were, that's no reason for a man to have to direct it because the Hurt Locker is one of like the most like male orientated films you could possibly imagine and that was directed by a woman Catherine Bigelow um so yeah we need to see what are perceived to be barriers to who can be involved in a film and who can have that creative voice we need to see those like torn down and dismissed because they are really kind of arbitrary and they only exist because of arbitrary rules that needn't actually exist yeah it's just interesting because the, you have these characters like Obi-Wan and Han Solo who are obviously very beloved across the fandom, but there are such different ideas of the characters spend, depending on who you're talking to. Because mm. um, there's this notion of like Han Solo and Obi-Wan obviously being these uh, examples of very masculine characters. Yeah, there's this idea that you know these characters are very macho, but there's that's just not how I see them at all. And presumably it's not how you do. Yeah. No, repeat your favourite line from Empire's End again about Han as a father. Oh, what, the smuggle, not snuggle? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, like, uber-masculine dude. Uber-masculine. I'm sure that's how Han prefers to see himself. That's, like, the point, right? (laughs) He's full of this defensive idea of, oh, no, I don't get close to people and blah, blah. But it's a total ruse. Like, he's he's a sucker for Leia. So, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Like he's he's not the cool, smooth, talking ladies man that he wants to think of himself as. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, thanks again for that um question, Michael. It was a great one. Um, right. And then the next question is from Janet via email. I love your podcast. You both always have such interesting and intelligent conversations about this make-believe universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really do. We devote a lot of time to it. <laughs> I know, it's a bit sad, really, isn't it? (laughs) It's not real. (laughs) Yeah, but it's so much fun. It is. Right. While I was listening to one of your episodes, I had a thought. People always debate whether or not Raylo can happen and be believable because she hates him so much at the end of The Force Awakens. I love the chemistry and dynamic there, but I often wonder the same thing. How could she possibly develop feelings for this man after all he's done? I've heard different speculation and theories about this. Then in one of your podcasts, you were talking about her being abandoned by her family. I think Kylo definitely felt abandoned by his family as well, especially his father. The thought I had, and I haven't heard yet, not that, and no one else has also thought of this, 
was do you think Kylo's pursuit of her to Act 2 could play into her abandonment issues? My thoughts on this were, if I'm empathising with Ray and I've felt forgotten and abandoned my whole life by the people who were supposed to care for me, I might develop a sort of forgiveness or compassion eventually for someone, even if it's a, even if it's a ruthless bad guy who finds me fascinating and special and powerful and who identifies with those same feelings of abandonment. It's also an aspect of the pairing that is a draw for me, because I do think it's a major thing they have in common. Anyway, thank you so much for your hard work producing your show, and I look forward to each one. Have a great day. Um, Yeah, I guess the question here is, or at least the crux of the question, is what could cause Ray to like stop perceiving Kylo as like a monster to develop like more compassionate, sympathetic feelings towards him. What are your thoughts, Kirsty? Um I I think once things kind of slow down mm. and they have a moment to actually have a conversation or if they have a kind of force connection that seems to be hinting at in various places, um, she would develop an understanding of how he really feels. Mm. Um so yes, he feels abandoned by his family or at least that's what people like jj abrams and adam driver have been saying it's debatable whether that comes through in the force awakens but not everyone sees that but um yeah like i i just feel like these characters are being set up to probably at least from ray's part think that they are total opposites so she thinks he's a monster but the narrative would probably go the way that she's actually quite surprised to find out that they do have things in common yeah no, but I can't. Think, yeah, aside from thinking in a very vague sense of once the action kind of slows down, like presumably once they meet up and probably have another physical confrontation, that they would have to have a com- conversation of some kind after that. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. I think for me, I think back to that moment where you see Ray running off to the Falcon after she's defeated Kylo and obviously left him behind for the First Order to get to, and you see her pause and look back. Um, presumably in Kylo's direction and they don't dwell on that moment and it's not like there's a big dramatic close-up on her face or anything but I do think in that moment you are seeing some kind of sense that she's at least thinking about him she's thinking oh my god I wonder what's going to happen to him and that isn't necessarily sympathy but it is like thinking about him in a capacity that goes beyond oh my god the evil monster who's trying to kill me yeah I think sometimes, and I understand why people say she hates him because obviously she's very angry and they have that fight where she basically kicks his ass and leaves him like he could die unless Hux picks him up, you know? So it's like, yeah, she hates him on one level, but also there has to be more there in terms of feeling confusion. And if she knows that he's Han's son, it's like, how on earth did this happen to Han Solo's son? Mm. So there's got to be some level of curiosity there as well. Yeah. Um. So it's probably a little more complicated than it seems by from by the end of The Force Awakens. And if you can pick up on little things like, as you say, her looking back, it's it's not straightforward hatred. And, uh, you know, the, the ground splits between them and she looks like she kind of catches up with herself and feels a bit horrified by what she's done. Mm. And I um, do wonder if there's going to be a certain element of pity colouring, like how she looks at him in The Last I think, Jedi. I think the scar will play into that. Yeah. No, definitely, because she'll know that she inflicted that on him. And don't get me wrong, he deserved it. He was an ass in the, for much of The Force Awakens. But, like, at the same time, you caused that permanent damage to someone. And, like, no matter what that person did, and no matter 
like how much you hated that person I think when you're separated from those feelings of hatred and the intensity of the situation in which you inflicted that wound like I think it is natural to like take a different stance on it and to actually think wow I really messed up his face yeah it's interesting isn't it because you know the the kind of general fan reaction has been woohoo Ray kicked the bad guy's ass you know and it's awesome to see I love that fight so much and I think it went the way it should have gone like I really love that the villain lost yeah um but at the same time we're looking at this through a Star Wars lens and it's not the Jedi way you know Mm. um so Ray is distinctly acting in a very un-Jedi-like way there. Obviously, she hasn't been trained. We know that. But I feel like it's something that informs her character, that she has this anger inside her. And Kylo feels anger too. So, you know, they're on opposite sides of a war, but they can't be that different. Yeah. You know, if she feels that level of aggression to him. Yeah. And and, and you can say it's justified. It's, It's not like I'm saying that she shouldn't have done it. But, um... I think her feelings are going to have to evolve because Star Wars is about compassion. Yeah. No, I think that's like a big element of those characters. Like it is the fact that they're more similar than either of them would like. Like, and because one of the most interesting and intriguing things about that interrogation is how Kylo seems to, in a way, like identify with Rey. And like when he's saying, like, you're so lonely and that kind of thing, he could easily be talking about himself as much as Rey. And yeah, like they're mirrors of each other. And I think The Last Jedi is going to be about forcing them to confront that. Yeah, because if you think about it from Kylo's perspective as well, it's probably from his end, it's like he he might wish that Rey had never come into his life as well because she's bringing out that compassion in him that he's been trying to get rid of. Yeah. That's, that's something that in the next scene after that, in the novelization, Snoke calls him out on. So it's going to be like she she reminds him of his humanity, whereas he's reminding her of that dark side yeah. that she has. So it's very interesting to see like this mirroring that's going on. Yeah. And that there might be this moment where they both feel like they wish the other person had never come into their lives, but they also kind of need each other in a strange way. Yeah. So. It's also Jungian. Yes, indeed. <laughs> still need to have that discussion. Yeah. Uh, right. Then the next question is from Emily via email. Hi, it's Emily again. I sent in that question about the alarming rumour I heard about Chewie's fate in episode 8. I have a better question this time. If you could have absolutely anyone direct a Star Wars film, who would you choose and why? And also, if Lucasfilm chooses a female director for the rumoured young adult Star Wars film, who do you think they would choose? I love your podcast so much. It has become one of the highlights of my week. Thank you for all the hard work you put into it. Oh, thanks, Emily. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, I guess there's two questions here. So if you could have anyone direct a Star Wars film, who would it be, Kirsty? Um, I think I would have, as much as I love Return of the Jedi, I think I would have really liked to see David Lynch's version of it. Oh, you stole my answer. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thief. Yeah, I, I just, I'm... Uh, every so often I'll start wondering about what the, what that might have been like. <laughs> like just... Probably a lot more like June. <laughs> well, okay, maybe I wouldn't want that. <laughs> reverse, reverse. Definitely reverse. not my favourite Lynch project. But um, 
I don't know. Like I, he's at the top of my list of people who I would love to see direct a Star Wars film. Mm. Um, there's other people there too, but um, yeah, because he was tied to that in my mind. Like that's that's the one that I wonder about. Yeah. No, like a David Lynch directed Star Wars film would be so badass. <laughs> oh my god. Um, right, I need to actually think a bit harder now about what my answer would be to that question. Well, I told you that I'd written out a whole list of people who I would have liked to consider, and then I lost the list somehow. Oh, I didn't say that. Cassie! was not very well prepared. I mean, realistically, for future films, mm-hmm. um, and I know that Guillermo del Toro was being, con- or he was kind of rumoured at some point, mm-hmm. or am I just completely making that up? I would, I would really like to see one of his Star Wars films as well. Yeah. Love his, I love his films. Like he has fantastic vision. Yeah. Okay, I have my answer. I don't think it would ever happen, but I have my answer. The Wachowskis. Oh. I think that would be freaking badass. It would never happen because the Wachowskis are major black sheep in Hollywood right now. Um, because they lost Warner Bros. like a hundred million dollars after Jupiter Ascended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Justice for Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> There's all this interesting stuff going on about the Matrix now, isn't there? Because yeah, it sounds like Joel Silver's going to be involved, but if it happens, <sighs> but who knows? Who knows about the Wachowski sisters? So yeah, pray that doesn't happen. Um, yeah, but... I don't. <laughs> but yeah, I just love. <laughs> I love the Matrix, but sorry. Don't worry, it's fine. I would just love to see the Wachowskis have a shot in that world. Because I know you haven't seen mm. Jupiter Send In yet, Kirsty. Um, but it's just filled with so much like visual imagination and it's just this whole world like popping out. You almost get the impression that Jupiter Ascendant is a film bursting at the seams because there's so much activity and so much life in this world that this one film cannot contain it. So yeah, give the Wachowski siblings the sequel sequel trilogy and let them direct and write the whole thing. That is like my <laughs> dream of a future Star Wars project. Will never happen. But if I could <laughs> anyone, that would be what would happen. Mm. And then what about the the young adult one? Have you thought about that? <sighs> oh boy. Um. Oh my god. Because I'm not sure I would actually. I don't. I can't think of too many female directors that I feel like would really fit into that mm. that I'm sure there are but the the list of female directors that I put together um people like Andrea Arnold and Ava DuVernay they're not particularly people I would associate with that genre yeah so I would love to see a female director of a Star Wars film like I think I've made that pretty clear but I don't know if it necessarily has to be the the young adult romance mm. Like I was thinking there's um a director called Gina Prince Bifewood. I'm very sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, but she directed Beyond the Lights with Gugum Bavaror. And that's oh. like a romantic movie about this young pop star and like she falls in love with like her bodyguard, I think. Um and it's like a total like corny, cheesy plot, but it's really well done and it's mm. like just a really nice, pleasant, likable film. Um, and I think if they were going for like a film of om- overt romantic tones to it, I think she'd definitely be a really good choice. And it'd be nice to see that kind of director who has worked on these like smaller, more intimate projects, given this big sci-fi canvas to work with. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, like she was just someone who struck me like in that second. <laughs> I have no idea if she'd be interested or not, but she's definitely a name I'd be really happy to see in the ring, so to speak. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I was talking to you about this before the show, but there are lots of female directors I like, like Sofia Coppola, but they have very distinctive styles that I'm not sure would translate that well to Star Wars. Yeah, sure. So they would have to adapt things quite a lot because, you know, I've seen people throw out these weird ideas like, oh, what about a Wes Anderson Star Wars? <laughs> it's just like there are certain things that, you know, if you pick someone to do that kind of film, um, they're going to have to change their own style quite a bit to fit into the the wider framework of what Star Wars is. Yeah. This is like you, you wouldn't want Tim Burton to direct a Star Wars film, you know, because that would be just wrongness in so many ways because he's the director who has this like almost like aggressively individualistic stamp on all his films. And I just yeah. don't think that would work with Star Wars. I think, you know, I like a lot of Tim Burton films and I'm a big Planet of the Apes fan, but I, I do not like his Planet of the Apes movie. <laughs> no one likes his Planet of the Apes movie. Really so bad. yeah, it just doesn't, not everything is going to work. Even if a director is fantastic at what they do, it's not always going to be a great fit. So Mm. yeah lots of people to consider hopefully some of those names are in the mix of Lucasfilm as well it'll be interesting when we start hearing about that yeah and I'm sure they have loads that we're not even really aware of like I I would not consider myself um, particularly knowledgeable about these up and coming directors so yeah no that's Lucasfilm's job (laughs) Um, right and then the last question is from Addy via email and this goes hi ladies i love your podcast nice to hear some other ladies discussing star wars fandom on a level that i'm familiar with i haven't listened to all episodes of your show so forgive me if you've addressed this topic before but what do you think about people naming their kids um with star wars unique names i have two kids myself and found naming another person a huge but interesting task i considered star warsy names for both of them but ended up steering away. Unless you consider Ewan, like McGregor, to be Star Wars related. I do love (laughs) Obi-Wan. I do know of someone who has a son named Anakin. And the first time I heard it, I was mildly horrified. Even though I'm a Vader fan, I couldn't understand why you would name your child such an iconic villain's name that couldn't have any other origins. Then, after I considered it further, I decided that my real issue with the name was that I just didn't care for it, and it would really bother me if people called my son Annie for short. (laughs) I I think Luke and Leia are also great names, but wouldn't name twins that. I fear the incest suggestive bullying. (laughs) (laughs) I've also heard of people using Skywalker as a middle name. Luke Skywalker last name. I was telling my husband the other day that if we had another son, and that's a big if, Kylo would be my number one boy's name, and he was cool with it, despite not being a huge Star Wars fan. Other than being obsessed with Ren's character, I think it's just a really cool name. But I feel that most of the population would be wondering why we named our son after a guy who killed his own father. (laughs) Kind of how I was horrified by Anakin at first. What do you think about real people walking around with names that were obviously inspired by their parents' Star Wars fandom? Padme, for example. Addy. Thank you for the question, Addy. This is a really fun one. (laughs) Mm. Um, So yeah, Kirsty, what do you think about this? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there are lots of names in Star Wars, obviously, like Ben and Luke and Finn, that are just normal names. Um, and even someone like Ray, you know, people now would probably think, oh, it's because of Star Wars, but I'm sure there are already lots of Rays walking around. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure. I guess it depends how openly you want 
want your geek flag to fly. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess for me, thinking on how I'd feel if I were the child, like with a very distinctive Star Wars name, I think what I would prefer for myself is if my parents did love Star Wars and wanted to show that, I think I'd rather they gave it to me as a middle name. Yeah. Because um, then lots of people don't, you know, have to use their middle names or be referred to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or at least, like, if you really want the Star Wars name to be the first name, then give the child a normal middle name. So then if they wanted to, they could choose to go by that, like, casually. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, if I were called, um, oh, God, like, Padme, for example, I'd, like, in my teenage rebellion period, for example, I might be horrified by the fact I was called Padme be like no you're going to call me betty okay <laughs> i'd choose like the most aggressively normal name you could possibly imagine to try and distance myself from that yeah i would be a bit worried that it would put put them off star wars yeah you know, to be associated with it but um i don't know there are lots of names in star wars canon that i do like that aren't obviously star wars even though they're they're names that are not quite as common like sienna in lost stars i really like that name yeah i really like amidala actually yeah it's really pretty but i'd probably go for it as a middle name rather than a first name and i think it's also a question to think about nicknames um because it's hard to come up with a non-kylo-esque nickname um would it be like kai i guess um which kind of works because there is the name kai k-a-i um but yeah like i'd just make sure it's about giving your child a choice to some extent so yeah, I'd say middle names would be the way to go if it's something uber distinctive like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, oh, people can name their kids whatever they want. So. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> I definitely don't want to um, be the personal responsibility for naming anyone's child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so if you really love the name and your husband's happy, absolutely go for it. Um, that would just be my personal feelings and what I'd do if I were going to give my child a Stoll's name. Like, I don't have kids, but in the hypothetical scenario right and then the final segment and i'm going to try and insert a helpful siren noise here to warn people off is that we are now going to have our spoiler segment (coughs) so if you do not want to hear spoilers for star wars the last jedi stay far far away because yeah i'd say we're moving beyond the realm of target spoilers now target spoilers are spoilers where there are things you would be able to deduce from seeing displays in target so it's not really big spoilers um and yeah what we're getting now is more like information on the plot and stuff so yeah i want to give people fair warning um right so to move on I will probably combine the first two stories because one of them is very brief. It's just given a planet's name. And the second one actually expands on what happens on the said planet. So the all of this comes from making Star Wars, by the way. They've been getting great stories recently. Um, so they're the place to go for your spoiler fixes. Um, and we essentially have a name, or at least we think we have a name, for the planet that is represented by Dubrovnik, where they did lots of filming last year. For the last jedi and that name is canto bite <laughs> and i need to make it clear that bite is spelt b-i-g-h-t not b-i-t-e 
which should have quite a different air to it. <laughs> and I'm sure when people say it in the movie, it's going to sound much more nice and pleasant than how I say it. Um, so I make it sound like someone's going to gnaw someone's hand off or something. <laughs> um, and I think it's actually quite a beautiful lyrical name because, like, canto is a type of music, I think. Bite is something as well. Let's see. What does it mean? Uh, do, 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 do. Um, right. A curve or recess in a coastline, river, or other geographical feature. Um, and yes, yeah, so that seems very fitting for Dubrovnik because it has a curving, like, coastline. Um so yeah, it's a really nice name, and I like it very much, and it sounds very appropriate to the setting. I just googled it, and it says, Canto is a principal form of division in a long poem. Oh, right. So it's, yeah, it's not so much music, it's more about poetry, which is oh. interesting. Interesting. It's nice and lyrical then. Yeah, it says, a long subsection of an epic or long narrative poem. Yeah. And um, I think people have pointed out that there were some police officers photographed on set in Croatia um, and they had helmets with arabesh on them that had the initials CPPD Mm -hmm. um, in arabesh. Um, And yeah, so we can reasonably assume that that stood for Canto Bite Police Department. Um, Yeah, and that's raised the question of whether Cantobite is the name of the planet or the name of the city where the action takes place. Um, I'd kind of lean towards it being the city. Um, so if you think it's like LAPD, for example, Los Angeles PD. Right. Not like US PD. <laughs> Although then again, this is Star Wars, so it's possible they have like an interplanetary police force rather than like a localised one. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking it sounds more like a city name, but also, <laughs> who knows, because this is Star Wars, like you say. Um, it sounds like it could also be a person's name to me. So, Yeah, no, it's really cool. I like it. It has a pleasant sound, and I can buy it as a Star Wars name. Um, but yeah, then the real meat of this, it comes from a follow-up report that Making Star Wars put out. Um, and I will read most of it, because there's just lots of good information here. And I think it's worth sharing with you guys. And it goes, Yesterday we discussed a little bit about Canto Bite. I have had reason to believe there was a Canto Bite jail set created for Star Wars The Last Jedi as well. The first time I heard about the guys, they were called jailhouse guards. I've also been told they have goggles that go with their helmets that sort of evoke the cloud car pilot from the old Kenner action figure as well. This brings me to Benicio del Toro's character. He is either named DJ, or it is his code name used by the production. He wears all black. He has a trench coat on with a Han Solo-style belt at the waist to hold his blaster. His hair is short. He also has a strange cap that doesn't have a bill to it. He looks slimy and dirty, but the billless cap makes him look sort of like a throwback to a different era. He belongs in the criminal underworld by the looks of him. The man in black style character we heard about is certainly there, but his style evokes a few things in the design. His trench coat reminds me of Anakin's Revenge of the Sith costume, in that as lapels evoke a tabard look, and it's black leather. All of this makes his ship all the more curious to me. This is where things get weird. His ship is really fancy. The interior looks like something you would see from Canto Bight. It really looks as if someone took the J.J. Abrams Star Trek films and designed the interior of the Falcon for a new Trek film. The cockpit has a very nice singular red seat for him to pilot from. In the back of the ship, it has a communal section like the Falcon, where a crew could sit and socialise. But instead of dingy white seats and a chessboard... 
It has a very nice, bright, curved blue booth with a table. No word on a chess booth. And it looks more like a nice hotel than something Han Solo would live in. The inside of the ship at Pinewood was a mixture of Amidala's Nubian ship from The Phantom Menace, mixed with the look and feel of Abram's Trek and a few hints of the sleek apple design aesthetic. We saw revitalise the look of the classic Stormtrooper into the First Order Stormtrooper we have today. If the Falcon is a Winbago, this ship is a luxury yacht made by Bill Gates. So why does DJ have this fancy ship? Do Finn and Kelly Marie Tran even named or codenamed Rose, just like Mars during the Force Awakens production, break him out of jail as part of the casino plot in which they need a hacker played by Justin Farrow? Does DJ dress scummy to trick people into thinking he's scum, but he's actually an expert gambler? Maybe they just simply steal the ship and that's how he gets it. Does he look dingy because he's been in jail on Canto Bite? So, yeah, there's lots of meat there to consider. What do you think about this, Kirsty? Yeah, I think this kind of mystery around the character might be why they haven't been giving us any information about him. Because mm. it, it might be like a reverse Lando, um, where he seems like really scummy and not someone not to be trusted and whatever, but actually is someone from like the high society or like, yeah, is pretending to be something he's not for whatever reason. So I'd be very interested to see how it comes out in the marketing. Yeah. Like maybe, which side they would want to market. Maybe he's King Prana in disguise. I have seen that theory floating around. <laughs> <laughs> I've also seen people suggest that he might be Duquesne, who was the guy right. who stole the Millennium Falcon. Hmm. But I kind of hope he's not overtly connected to Ham, because... I don't think you can make everything too beholden to the character of Han Solo. So he's already going to have a big legacy for Leia and Ben. So yeah, I'd kind of be more excited to see this character just be like a new person. Like who's important to the resistance for some reason. So Finn and Calamary Tran's character have to go off and get him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want the world to seem too small. Yeah, exactly. It's not like it is a small village where everyone knows everyone else. <laughs> It's a big, big galaxy. But the description of him having the trench coat reminds me of some of the Han Solo concept art from The Force Awakens. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, I do. It just occurred to me. I don't know how much truth there would be in that. But when he just, yeah, he compares it to Anakin. But it was making me think more of Han from The Force Awakens that they ultimately didn't go with. Yeah, I really like that look. I, was, I yeah. kind of wish they had put Han in something more like that. Um, but I guess they wanted to veer more closely towards his classic costume. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, like he sounds really cool to me. Um, from what they're describing, it sounds like he is a very important figure to the plot in Canto Bite. I kind of sort of wonder if he's like the MacGuffin, like of that strand of the story, mm-hmm. like in the sense that he's the person that everyone wants. Like, and I do think he'll be more important than an actual MacGuffin because the whole point of a MacGuffin is that that's not really what the story's about and there's no substance to it when you actually find it. Mm. Um, but I can see BDT's character being someone that all the sides are interested in and he, to a large extent, motivates the plot. Like, yeah, I feel like he's going to be pretty key once Finn and Kelly Marie Tran find him. He's probably going to be pretty key to then the rest of the story, right? In terms yeah. of them going after the First Order and... Whatever happens, but he'll be instrumental in that somehow. Yeah. So can you remember there were rumours um, ages ago from last year about um, 
Finn and Ray being spotted with Benicio del Toro infiltrating some kind of first order base together. Yes. And they said it wasn't clear like in what capacity they were all together and stuff. Um, but I really think that Kelly Marie Tram was mistaken for Ray in that situation. And that perhaps that's an, a clue as to where Benicio del Toro goes after the Dubrovnik action. So maybe they break him out and then he helps them get into this first order base or something. Yeah, I think so. Because wasn't there something then a bit more recently? I think it was from Making Star Wars again that they'd got a hold of some uh, information that said like different kinds of costumes they needed for various scenes. And one that included Finn also had something like a medal that Kelly Marie Tran's character was supposed to wear. Yeah. Something like that, like a medallion. Um, Okay, yeah, I think on that list, or whatever it was they had an extra person who wasn't named but it looked like it could have been Benicio Del Toro's character Mm. so that would that would factor into that I I wish I had the spoiler in front of me but it was like something else that confirmed what you just said that it wasn't Daisy Ridley who'd been spotted with Finn it was um probably Kelly Marie Tran yeah yeah exactly I think there was lots of confused reporting last year so I think a lot of people expected Finn and Ray to be a unit still in The Last Jedi so I think that probably pay, played into how these reports were coming out and why mm-hmm. we were getting a suggestion that Ray was with Finn when she wasn't yeah because I think there's still been debate about whether Ray was going to end up in the Canto Bite <laughs> we have to get used to calling it that yes. instead of Dubrovnik that side of the plot because um, Daisy's stunt double was seen in Dubrovnik at some point yeah so I don't know. I think some people are still thinking that that's possible. Like, I guess it still is, but there's been nothing else besides that that would hint at Ray being part of that side of the story. Yeah. And if she's on up two with Luke, uh, unless Luke is there in Country Bite as well, it just doesn't quite work. So. Yeah, it seems a bit sure. odd. And um, with that whole thing, there's also... Um, we had pictures out of um, the Canto Bite set when they were filming in Dubrovnik of Chloe Bruce in costume, and she clearly wasn't in costume as Ray in any. Capacity. Oh, that's right. She there was, was like, a dressed in her. this like very black formal dress with this very like severe hairstyle, and she looked nothing like Ray. So I think she was just being used in another capacity. Yeah, it's always possible as well that she was asked to go almost as a decoy so that people would think that Ray was in that side of the story. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? To get all conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah, it's always possible. Yeah, um, I was wondering if, um, like you said, we know that Calamary Tran's character, she carries a medallion. I wonder if that's perhaps something to do with this like apparent hacking that's going to go on with Justin Furrow's character. Um, like maybe that contains mm. like a computer code or something. Um because obviously there's a grand tradition of that sort of thing happening in Star Wars, as we saw most recently in Rogue One. It's obviously all about transmitting like this data. Um, so it's possible that that's used to carry the data around that they need to get into this First Order base. But again, that's heavy extrapolation. Yeah. Um, Who knows? Exactly. Do you think Rose is going to be her real name? or I'm like... kind of surprised at that because as he notes in the report that was Maz's code name and she was named after one of JJ Abrams teachers yeah um and Rose just again come kind of coming back to that question we had earlier it's such a normal sounding name mm. Finn and Rose you know yeah um, I, I saw that um like a long time ago there was like a picture that Ryan I think tweeted or put on his Instagram or something 
showing like the names of the characters um and they include like ray and finn and there was also the name rosie but he'd like tried to scrub it out um so people have been speculating that he inadvertently gave away kelly marine trans character's name with that post so mm. it's possible that like her name is actually rosie but yeah like you say it's so normal it doesn't sound like a star's name at all yeah but, but it's possible that they would go for that because they they do have normal sounding names exactly. it's just it's just an interesting coincidence, potentially, if, if they're using that same name that was Maz's code. Exactly. You don't get more normal than, like, Ben. <laughs> okay, then the next story is that we have details of a new Resistance planet. Right. And then, this is, again, from Making Star Wars, um, and this world's called Crete. And apparently, we have already heard about this before, because it has been featured in the Rogue One Ultimate Visual Guide, and it's spelt C-R-A-I-T, so like that rather than like the Greek island. Um, and it was mentioned in the Rogue One book like this. Lieutenant Hef Tobber, great name, has been stationed as a transport pilot at the Rebels' crate outpost prior to its abandonment. So, yes, we they're clearly laying the seeds for these things in the wider canon, basically, which is cool. But it seems like this world is something we're going to return to in The Last Jedi. Right, so I will read about it. The world appears to be a giant salt flat with stretches of large black volcanic rocks. The black rocks look red because there is smouldering lava seeping out of them. It should be noted that the setting isn't like Mustafar from Revenge of the Sith with free-flowing lava. This is why early reports described it as Mars with snow on it. The lava is seeping out of the giant rock formations found scattered around the salt flat valleys in between the hot rocky terrain. It still isn't clear if the white ground is salt or a light dusting of snow, but the white powdery substance collects around the banks of the settlement there, and depending on who you talk to, it's snow or salt. What's significant about the world? In The Last Jedi, there was a mine there. The mine, from what I've been told, was used by the Rebels as a secret base and source of funds during the fight against the Empire. During the Resistance era, the mine is still producing some type of gem that is used to fund the Resistance. It sounds like it doubles as a way to fund the Resistance and act as a new hidden base for the Resistance after the events of The Force Awakens. It isn't clear how much of that is pertinent to The Last Jedi, but that's what the rumours were from the set. However, the Resistance having a mine on Kriot has been confirmed to us more than once and is a story element we're confident in. This is the setting in which the new First Order Heavy Assault Walkers, rumoured to be called AT4Xs, as well, (laughs) attack the Resistance mine. There is a visual effect shot of about ten of the walkers all walking shoulder to shoulder, looking very apish as they approach the mine. The heavy assault walkers attack the mine in The Last Jedi, and that's their big action sequence in the movie. The B-Wings we saw out in Bolivia attack the walkers. We heard there's a shot in the film where some of the gems from the mine are dropped onto some of the walkers by the resistant ships, and they topple some of the walkers. So yeah, very intriguing stuff. Um, Mm. What did you make of this? The actual report is longer, but it's mainly like more about the vehicles and stuff. So I don't feel it necessary to read it all out. Yeah, it's interesting because it's interesting to hear how the resistance is funded because I'd previously just kind of assumed that the Republic was giving them most of their money. Yeah, same. 
And obviously now we know that the Republic, or at least the, the capital of the Republic, has been destroyed with most of those politicians and presumably its financial centre, that uh, they would be in real dire straits in terms of where they would get their funding from. Yes. Um, but maybe that's just not a concern, and this is kind of a convenient way to get around that. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. I find that one of the most interesting things, the fact that this world seems to be used to fund the resistance, because there's been lots of speculation about um, Cantobite or Planet Dubrovnik, as I've been fondly calling it up to this <laughs> point, um, about that being like a world where lots of the First Order money comes from, um, because it seems to be like a very affluent world with like lots of richly dressed people, and there appears to be gambling and a casino, and yeah, there's this general like air of seediness and corruption to it. Um, and if you look at the First Order in The Force Awakens, they clearly are not strapped for cash by any means. So they clearly have significant funds. So I think it would make a lot of sense for them to be filtering their money through operations like a casino, for example. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like the Mafia, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, whereas the resistance, they're being more noble and working in mines, chipping away to make every jewel count towards the <laughs> noble team effort. Um, but yeah, like, and I think this is all symptomatic of how much thought Ryan Johnson has put into the world building here, because he's clearly thinking, okay, right, how do these things exist? How do they function? Where does the money come from? Because that was a big problem people had with The Force Awakens. It's like, they had no sense of the context to the events and they had no sense of the politics or like how these things fit into the wider galaxy. And all of this stuff, it just implies to me that Ryan's thinking about that and planning to convey that somehow in his film, which is nice. Yeah. And you, as you say, you kind of figure that if, if The Last Jedi is going to be a success in terms of storytelling, they are going to have to take the time and care to you know, invest in the world building the way that the prequels did a lot mm. um, to kind of show how this wider society works rather than throwing you into the action, which The Force Awakens does, which makes sense. But that's just kind of the second film's job that it has to slow down a bit and explain how things are the way that they are. Yeah, totally. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing more about those contexts and how everything fits together. And I'm I'm impressed that we already have the name of the planet and it just appeared somewhere else first. Because mm. it kind of shows that the story group is really doing a good job of fitting all of these different pieces together. Exactly. Because we yeah. speculated, was it last week or the week before we were talking about, well, maybe, you know, maybe we'll see Jeddah in, in in the sequel trilogy. Or um, Mustafar seems like a safe bet at this point. Like, there are all these hints that we're going to see Vader's castle again. So mm. um, it makes sense to have these other planets previously re- referred to as well. However small, and even if they don't... If, even if they're not pictured in Rogue One, they're still part of that story, however small. Yeah, totally. They're clearly like playing the long game, which is yeah. really nice. So, yeah, um, I've seen some people say that they're afraid that this kind of setup, so you have a resistance planet, and it's potentially a snowy planet, although Jason says he's not sure of that, and then you have it being attacked by First Order Atats. Like, and people are saying, oh god, it's just going to be like Empire Strikes Back again. What do you make of that? Um, I'm not worried about that personally because that's all quite superficial stuff that the story doesn't need to be beholden to. Yeah. And it's all, you know, if I was writing this story, I would almost want to play into those perceptions, right? Mm. That people are going to expect it to be like Empire Strikes Back. 
but then very quickly you realise that it's not. Yeah. Get them all uh, comfortable, I, I can understand, then pull the rug out. Yeah, I can understand people having those concerns because a lot of people did think that The Force Awakens was too much like A New Hope, but yeah. I don't think that's where it's going to go. It might seem that way for a brief second, mm. but you know, the fact that they're using Atats doesn't mean that the story is going to be the same. Yeah. It just means that the First Order is kind of a remnant of the Empire, and we know that that's the case. Like, since The Force Awakens, we've had lots more information come out about how the First Order kind of came out of the Empire. Like, we were talking about Empire Zen last week, and kind of how young Hux was raised in that environment and things like that. So it all makes sense. Um, Yeah, I don't think it's going to turn out to be the same film again. Yeah, I think for me it'll be how it's used in the story. So if the film starts out with this sequence, so this new resistance base being attacked by the new 8080s, then yeah, I'd think those claims about it just being a rip-off of ESB, that would be legitimate. But I don't think that's going to be the case because everything we've heard suggests that it's picking up pretty much exactly where Force Awakens left off. So Finn is recuperating on Dakar, um, so I'd expect him to still be there when he wakes up, unless they've moved him while he's been in a coma. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'd expect this to be more like a middle movie kind of action sequence. And I think just changing that context alone, that will make it quite a different sort of thing. Yeah. It's, and it's very difficult to know from these spoilers, it's impossible to know really, how much time you're going to spend in that scene. Yeah. Like we don't we don't know how long we're going to see these walkers for if it's going to be a brief shot or something else is going to happen that completely changes the fact that we're linking them to empire so exactly it's very different um right we said we want to say about cleat i think so okay cool um right well, aside from that i just think that the planet sounds really cool like that mixture of the salt or snow whatever it turns out to be and yeah. the lava with the volcanic rocks i think that sounds like it could be really beautiful yeah no totally um and those like set pics from bolivia they looked mm-hmm. amazing um because it's just such an incredible natural location the way it looks almost like glass because the yeah. ground is so smooth ah, and i've just remembered something else and that is that is very interesting to note that certain elements of this new rumor, they seem very reminiscent of a very old rumor. Oh yeah. By some of the spy on Reddit, who I always believed in. I always believed in Boffin the Spy. I never <laughs> lost faith. I, I wanted was... to believe. <laughs> um, I always held a candle. Um, and basically, what we have here is that in June 2016 on Star Wars Leaks subreddit. Yay, Reddit! Uh, Boffin Spy posted the following. About two months ago, scenes were filmed involved trenches on a rebel planet. I have no idea if they mean trenches in the traditional ground warfare sense, or a big trench like on the Death Star 1. Although based on timing, I am thinking it is the former. Red explosions were also involved. A lot of them, in fact. Yeah, and then obviously... In the new Making Stars report, we have the knowledge that this is a resistance planet and that there's going to be a battle there and that there's clearly going to be like a red element to that planet that would presumably result in red explosions if things were to go boom, boom, which they presumably are. There's going to be at-ats firing at things. Um, so yeah, it's looking pretty good for Boffin Spy's trustworthiness right now. Would you say you actually believe in Boffin Spy more now? 
because uh, yes because this seems to line up with that right so, yeah totally yeah i take i take everything i see on reddit with a huge pinch of salt which mm -hmm. you know i would advise other people to do but that doesn't mean that it's going to turn out to be untrue it's just that i would generally wait for someone like making star wars to come out with something that seems to support it yeah sure and then that obviously would lead me to think, well, maybe if they got this part of their report right, then maybe something else that Boffin Spy says would turn out to be true. Yeah. And just a reminder of the best thing Boffin Spy has said. 1st of May, 2016. <laughs> Here's the saucy bit. A few weeks ago, they blew up. Specifically, blew apart an Act 2 hut. According to my source, Kylo and Ray have a conversation that Luke does not like. Luke tries to stop them. Luke gets angry, dot, 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 and the whole hut they are in disintegrates. Re blows up. My source did not specify as to the exact cause of the disintegration, but based on the info, I believe Luke accidentally, or perhaps even purposely, does so using the Force. Badass! <laughs> Sorry, I need that to be true. I need that in my life. <laughs> It sounds hilarious. Like I need, if it's true, I'm dying to know what the context is. Yes. Oh my god! Like, what the hell could they be talking about that makes him so angry? I don't know. That was a rhetorical question, by the way. I didn't expect you to know. No, obviously. But um, what we were talking about was it last week or the week before? I can never remember. Um, that there's, what was it? Was it Star Wars Newsnet that um, report about? Luke feeling strange about what he'd been discovering in the Force and stuff like that. Yes, and that and that there was going to be this exposition on why he and Ben Solo had been divided in their philosophies of the Force. Mm -hmm. So that has to be part of Ray's story. So at some point, Kylo's going to say something to her about the Force, or yeah, or something that Luke's not going to like. You know, that's like because they point. clearly disagree on something. Uh, yeah, I think that's a plausible explanation for the kind of conversation that have. I think it's more likely to be him trying to win Ray to his side, like about his argument for what the Force is. Something along like those lines. Yeah, and the notion of like what whatever Luke discovered about the Jedi or or whatever he was trying to do with the New Order, like Ray has to really fit into that story, you mm. know. And because she's a newcomer to all the events of the story like she was kind of just thrown into the force awakens they have to start contextualizing it for her and why it would matter to her development yeah so that makes sense totally but yeah that made filled my heart with joy that was probably more exciting <laughs> for me than the actual report <laughs> so if like, it's I true can, i can own if it's true yeah like it's just because it gives it extra credence i think just because like it's cool to get that sense of what how the resistance is being funded, but the actual battle that doesn't interest me too much. It's never really my area of interest with Star Wars. The same. I know that's a big deal for other fans, but it's not. It's not for me, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. It's like that's why I wasn't going to read paragraphs and paragraphs about B wings and how they're variants on pre previously existing B wings and stuff. Then the final thing <laughs> is that. Um, Jason Ward was a guest on the Syphilist podcast, episode 34, and he said something interesting that he hasn't said anywhere else, and because we like to be thorough, this is what Jason said. The one thing we haven't talked about on the site yet that I want your guys' feedback on 
A big question, or one of the questions that people have asked, is Act 2. The planet that Luke Skywalker is on, is it inhabited? And one of the things that I've heard from very, very reliable people is that there is some kind of culture there. And I don't know how big it is, but there's at least like a nun. I don't know what you call it when you have like a nun and they have <laughs> what looks like a napkin on their head. It's like a wimple, I think, isn't it? Um, yeah. I hope I'm not insulting anyone's religion, but it's kind of one of those situations where she has a napkin on her head. <laughs> and she's like a frog amphibian kind of creature. Like, sort of short-looking and pudgy, but like a nun. So it makes me think that at some point in the movie, maybe, Luke Skywalker and Rey visit a nunnery or monastery of some kind, and that's where they must run into this person. So I don't know what that could mean, but I'll leave it to you guys to extrapolate on from here. Um, And yeah, later on he says there'll be an update soon on the spoiler where he talked about the Convaries, which are like the space puffins that are going to be on Octo. Um, so yeah, what what are your feelings about the frog nun? <laughs> the That's frog what nun. it is. I know. It sounds kind of bizarre, doesn't it? Um, the best way. Yeah, because when she flies to Arc 2, it's almost like they're setting up this idea that Luke's there by himself. Yeah. They, you know, it's kind of supposed to be this idea of him being there in isolation, that he ran away from everything. But we've said before that we don't think it's going to turn out to be that simple, that he's there for a specific reason. Um, so if him and Ray are looking for something, it makes sense to kind of have that, that archetypal character there as the guide in some way to kind of just point a finger and yeah, probably be mysterious and not someone who's really like developed, but to factor in somehow. Yeah. And it's really interesting. It would seem to like flip the script on what you've understood to be the case with act two. Cause it's like, okay, Frogner, seriously? <laughs> Um, I don't think that's what anyone's expecting from that strand of the story. Um, it definitely lends further support to the idea that they're going to be on Act 2 for a long time. Because mm-hmm. if they are building up this whole like culture there and this civilization, then that suggests they're really going to have time to explore that. Because if like raiders just go there, get a bit of training, and they're off to join the Resistance, then I really doubt there's going to be time to like explore Convaries and Frog Nuns and cults and all this weirdness. Um, so yeah, like it is very interesting from that point of view. And I also wonder if it feeds into like this recurring motif we've had banged over our heads with the Aftermath books, where we keep on seeing all these different like cults to do with different like aspects of the Force. Um, yeah. And I think the visual dictionary for Rogue One was also really heavy on exploring those cults and setting out all the different ones. Um, like they're really pushing this idea that the force is worshipped in many, many different ways, and there's all these kinds of belief systems built up around it. Um, so I'd expect that this frog nun is going to be part of like a different sect. I doubt she's going to be a Jedi or anything to do with that. She's just going to be about having a particular stance on the force that is different. Who knows? She might even just be standing in the background and not say anything <laughs> at one point. Yeah, but it would be a wasted opportunity. But yeah, like if there's if the first Jedi Temple there, then it would be really interesting to think about people who have been like guarding it for centuries or mm. protecting it somehow. Yeah. Um and if if Luke's been there and we don't know how long, but I would guess like five years, just from how things have been kind of shaping up so far, then 
there's this idea that he hasn't quite achieved what he set out to do yet. So mm. what's going to change now that Ray's there? And if Kylo's coming as well, like, does that have an impact on what they're trying to achieve? Mm. Like, does he need Ray and Kylo there somehow? Yeah. That might be the key, even though he doesn't realise it or might want to accept it, that he needs these other people. He can't just do it by himself. Yeah, I think that makes sense to have the younger characters fill into that role, right? That you have this older, wise wise character who still needs the younger generation. Mm. Um, yeah. Needs that clear-sighted point of view. Um, yeah, this frog nun spoiler. Um, so I just want to say the words frog nun as many times as humanly possible. Um, it also made me think about Ray's vision, where you obviously see Kylo stabbing this guy with like the weird salad bowl thing on his head. Um, because there's been lots and lots of speculation about when that scene takes place. Like, is it in the past? Is it in the future? Um, and like, there's been lots of heavy speculation that it takes place on Act Two in the Last Jedi, and that Ray was actually seeing the future in that moment. Um, and I can't help but wonder if this hint that there was like a civilization there with like people from all these different cults and stuff. Like I can't help but wonder if that suggests that yes, this scene is actually from the future. Um, because it's possible this guy is one of the people on Act Two, like one of the cultists or something. And then Kylo and the Knights of Ren, they strike him down for whatever reason while they are on the island. What would you think about that? That is a good point, because that vision is so vague that they can kind of just do with it whatever they want. Mm. So if Ryan decided to turn it into the future, they could. And yeah, now we know that there's Luke's not there alone. It makes that a bit more possible, because previously people have been saying, well, it has to be from the past, because Luke's just there on the island alone, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, who knows? Definitely opens possible. it up. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. Right. Oh, my goodness. It's crazy how long these shows get. <laughs> I think this week in particular is just so much news, but I don't know why I'm like moaning about it because this isn't going to be nothing compared to what's to come because it's celebration. Next week's going to be another level. Yeah, we will not know ourselves. Oh my god. Oh, like, <laughs> on a scale of one to ten, how excited are you at this stage for celebration? Eleven. Eleven. Styled up to eleven. <laughs> what do you mean you're not styled up to twelve? God. <laughs> I need to use and I, I recognise a um spinal tap preference and I so. <laughs> um, Yeah, no, I'm not going, but you and I'm super, super excited. Um do you want to remind anyone who's listening about your meetup, Kirsty? Yeah, so if people want to meet me and other scavengers horde listeners, come by the pub Orlando, which is not too far from the convention centre. I think it's about a half mile down the road. Um on Saturday fifteenth from eight yeah i'll be hanging out there with a few friends and would love to meet people so come and say hi and we can chat the last jedi because it's gonna be a trailer <laughs> oh my god oh, <laughs> yeah um and just one last thing i guess in terms of business to get out of the way is next episode it's going to be right in the throng of celebration and what we're going to try and do we're going to try and do something between me and kirsty while kirsty's at celebration so literally right on the ground. But that will depend on actually getting a functional internet connection on Kirsty's phone from the convention centre. <laughs> um, and obviously that's the kind of thing we can't anticipate until like, it's actually happening and Kirsty is there. 
Um, so fingers crossed it all works out and we will get a podcast or maybe even several, who knows, to you while celebration is going on. But if not, rest assured, we're going to have a massive, massive roundup episode after celebration. Probably nothing but a celebration roundup episode, to be honest. Um, because yeah, there's just gonna be so much to cover. But yeah, we are so excited and I can't believe it's here. So it felt like it was never going to arrive. It felt so so distant for so long. But yeah, it's just a week and it's unbelievable. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to get here now. Like we've yeah. been waiting so long. Like we've been starved of the last Jedi stuff. It's yeah. funny because I think at the beginning of production Ryan Johnson said they were gonna be much less secretive than The Force Awakens and J.J. Abrams. That has so not been true. Traitor! <laughs> They've barely given us anything. We've had an empty box yep. with Ray's new hairstyle on it. And I think that's about it. Yeah. It's been so. a spoiler drought, essentially. It's pretty sad. <laughs> Although making Star Wars have been coming through. Yeah. No, that is true. There's been so much stuff from them. Yeah. It's been a story a day, pretty much. It's been awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so you can find me on Tumblr at Star Wars Nonsense or on WordPress at Journal of the Star Wars. And Kirsty, where can people find you? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. Well, thank you so much for listening, guys, and we will see you on the other side of celebration. Bye. Woohoo. <laughs> Bye. Bye.